This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. The gang partially gathered. Jeff Simpson out with the gombu or something. He's being very... Uh, it's probably just the flu. Yeah. He's, he's being if, very quiet if you about watch, it. If you watch the news, the CDC is very concerned. The flu is it's taking over, and it's apparently worse than everybody thought. Yeah. But, hey, that's why you get a flu shot. See, when you're my age, you get a flu shot. This flu shot isn't working so well. Oh, mine worked great so far. Knock on Formica. Yeah, whatever this is. (laughs) Got a great show for you today. Uh, Boy, oh boy, good news. The president is healthy. Really healthy. Or or is he? Oh, come on. His doctor said he's healthy. And in fact, we'll not only be able to easily serve out this term, but another term if he is so elected. Hmm. And... He even uh, is mentally strong, took a A cognitive test test and aced it, 30 for 30 out of a cognitive test. That's good. I guess a normal score would be 26 out of 30, and our president aced it. That's tremendous. See, that's great news. One of the greatest scores ever. The greatest score you will ever see of all time in history. Now, you were an EMT. Yes. Some of these terms you may have better idea of. So uh, his so he's seventy one. Yep. In seven months, they're saying six foot three. We'll talk about that. Well, but oh, when you age, you shrink a little bit. Mm, uh, Two thirty nine yeah. for his weight. Yeah. Uh, body mass index at twenty nine point nine, which makes him overweight. He's overweight. By the, the way, BMI like the majority of Americans by one pound. Uh, his stolic blood pressure mm-hmm. one twenty two. He's at risk. It's mm-hmm. a little bit of high on the blood pressure. Well, one twenty two normal normal's one twenty. There you go. Uh, the uh, diastolic, diastolic blood pressure is at seventy four. Normal, yeah. Well, so eighties, so one twenty over eighty is a normal BP. One twenty two over seventy four, pretty good BP. Resting heart rates is sixty eight. Ah, oh, that's, that's normal. That's great. Total cholesterol is two twenty three, which I say is borderline. Yeah, no, he says his heart health is fine. It's great. HDL, good uh, cholesterol at sixty seven, which is normal. Bad cholesterol, way, borderline, which is amazing. Yeah. Considering yeah. his diet. My question was asked. And he he said, should be dead. He goes, some reporter's like, he eats McDonald's and Kentucky Fried no, he's Chicken. Healthy. How does he? And he's genetic, genetics. He's got gray genes. A lot of cholesterol is genetics. Oh, yeah. How your body yeah. deals with it. Oh, yeah. So. His heart health, the doctor said, he just has great genes. He's just, yeah. it's the only way to explain it. Uh, fasting blood glucose. Yeah. So, normal. He's killing it. He takes a daily multivitamin, Crestor, for trying to lower his cholesterol. Yeah. Uh, he takes a skin, he uses a skin cream to treat rosacea. Sure. And he's taking Propecia to prevent hair loss. See? There you go. Yeah. It's all there. Healthy. Really. I mean, honestly, how many of us would like to go through a, the exact same health scan and then have a, your doctor stand up in front of journalists for one hour? And answer questions. After, he came out, by the way, with the Propecia. He did. I mean, he's... he's. After the news, I'll bring up some of the questions people have. Okay. <laughs> it's really interesting. But uh, then he took the cognitive test. Now everyone, yeah, but what about his mental health? Yeah. Well... That's not what that doctor does. No. And honestly, uh, the doctor said, I don't see a need to do that. Right. Don't see the need. Now... 
He is reactive, mm-hmm. and some of it's probably he's playing people. Yeah. Yeah, and some of it he's bored. Or he's trying to do things he thinks that his hardcore supporters will enjoy. Yeah. It's all. It's all. I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. He's perfect. <laughs> and then and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, boy, she's fighting like crazy over what he said, what he didn't say. Yeah. That's turned into a crazy game. Yeah. It's still a, it's, a swear word. It's just it dis- a different swear but word. But which one? Yeah. Does, it, but then in the it, end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, because they're both, they're not very, like, he's not saying something positive. Mm-mm. It all is the same sentiment. And it's about now the big movement of uh, immigration. It's about kind of merit-based immigration. Yeah. So if you have something to bring America, mm-hmm. we let you in. With the idea that anybody can bring good things to America, except there are some countries that hmm. might be able to bring more people who have better educations, better insight, I mean, better, you know, better history of work, better than other countries. And Canada has a merit-based system yeah. to become a citizen of Canada, to enter Canada. So. Right. So I mean, there's maybe some precedents fine. in the world for this. It's just not something we've done here. Well, it, then I guess what it would say is if you're a refugee, uh, so what was your GPA? Yeah. And you're fleeing war. Yeah. Mm. So have you did taken you fail, you, did you take the ACT? What were your ACT scores? Oh, sorry. We were just trying to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't work for us. We have... Or, or you're an engineer, and we have yeah. plenty of engineers right now. Yeah. We need, yeah. We need more doctors. Oh, dear. <laughs> we need more PAs, more nurses. <sighs> anyway, uh, just know you've got a healthy president who can now tackle the tough issues of immigration and passing some pay bill to make sure the government doesn't shut down. Right. So it's all good. And we'll talk about more. Again, there's questions. There's other questions. Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? A survey by the Knight Foundation in partnership with Gallup found that 84% of American adults believe the news media is critical or very important to our democracy, but only 28% believe the news media is doing very well or well at supporting our democracy. Hmm. So 84% believe they are vital. 15% of the country thinks... 28% think they're not doing so hot when it comes to actually following through with yeah. supporting our democracy. Yeah. This uh, the Politico summarizes the findings by saying Americans are so polarized that they can't even agree on the definition of fake news. Democrats, the study found, hew more closely to the original definition of the phrase that emerged after, tw- after the 2016 election, referring to fabricated news stories that are intended to deceive. Yeah. Right. Republicans, on the other hand, are more likely to have all have also adopted the meaning that President Trump has ascribed to the term, which he often tags on stories that he doesn't like, regardless of whether or not they are factual. So fake news for the president would be anything against the president. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the polar opposites yeah. are at. So uh, Senator John McCain on Tuesday called out President Trump for his unrelenting attacks on the press in an op-ed for The Washington Post saying he is aiding dictators worldwide by putting uh, in the cross or the crosshairs on journalists. Mm. Whether Trump knows it or not, McCain wrote in his uh, 
His, his constant cry of fake news directed at reporters and news outlets whose coverage he d- disagrees with is being used by representative regimes or repressive regimes to crack down on the media. Referencing a report by the Committee to Protect Journalists, McCain noted that 21 instances of journals being charged for fake news were recorded in 2017. He went on to slam the Trump administration for condemning violence against journalists abroad while Trump continues his unrelenting attacks on the integrity of American journalists and news outlets. Fellow Arizona Arizona Senator Jeff Flake will speak today on the Senate floor, according to the reports, comparing Trump's approach to dealing with the media to Joseph Stalin. So Arizona's got this like media push on the president yesterday and today sure why that and now yeah up, now but. stalin's coming into this and that usually ends poorly so yeah whenever you're invoking hitler stalin's stalin pretty extreme yeah. so but i mean it is it is telling that you use fake news and then these other governments are now charging people with fake news yeah and throwing you in jail for fake news when it's just stuff they disagree with right so yeah that's kind of what separates us Used to. Yeah, historically. Now it's becoming a problem. Former White House top strategist Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by special counsel Robert Mueller to testify in front of a grand jury in the course of, an, of the investigation into the meddling of the 2016 election. Uh, the side of the New York Times, though Mueller has used subpoenas in the investigation for previous Trump associates, Bannon is the first of the president's inner circle to have been pulled in. The Times reports that Mueller may be inclined to allow Bannon to avoid the grand jury appearance in favor of being privately questioned by investigators. Bannon also testified before the House Intelligence Committee on Tuesday, who was very angry because Bannon didn't really answer all their questions, and they're mad that Mueller... Well, Bannon seems to be under a gag order from the White House when it comes to Congress. But when he talks to Mueller, go ahead, say what you want. And so Congress is mad because they're not getting the answers, but the Mueller investigation gets all the answers. Oh, sure. The Mueller's get all the things that are good. What's up with that? (laughs) Yesterday, it was announced by the Navy that the commanders of the USS Fitzgerald and the USS John McCain, which both uh, crashed into other ships... That those commanders that were relieved of duty will be charged with negligent homicide. One for ten deaths, one for seven deaths? Yes. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, wow. Usually you don't see the resolution of that, but they're no. making it public because these ships, one ran into a commercial vessel, the other one ran into an oil tanker. But So negligence, major negligence going on here. You have ships with super sophisticated radar, and they ran into another vessel out in the middle of the ocean. Not in the middle of the ocean, but in the ocean. You should be able to avoid an uh, oil yeah. tanker, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you, it's They're not huge. like these are speedboats. Oh. <laughs> you see so. it coming for days. And finally, the founders of New California took an early step towards statehood Monday with the reading of their own Declaration of Independence from California, a state oh, they boy. describe as ungovernable. Oh, they're going to call it, they would call it New California? New California. There'd be like California and New California. Okay. Sure. The solution take, uh, so it's ungovernable is the, what they're saying, the current situation is. Their solution take over most of current day California, including many rural counties, and leave the coastal urban areas to themselves. The current state of California has become governed by a tyranny, the group says, led in part by Vice Chairman uh, Paul Robert Preston, declaring in a document published online, the split w- uh, would run from San Francisco to Los Angeles and in just north of Riverside. So it wouldn't go, the, so the, wow. the current California would remain just the coastal area from San Francisco to L.A., 
just past L.A., just south of L.A.'s Riverside. So in between L.A. and San Diego, yeah. it would stop. San Diego and then the rest of the state, which is all the farmlands and everything, that would all be New California. So basically, California wants the oceans. Yeah. New California well, no, wants I, the hills and I the think mountains. California is not involved. Yeah. And this little group is assuming that everyone else – well, they, they actually have, as it says here, the group organized with a council of county representatives and various committees hopes to model the, their split after the state of West Virginia. Okay. Right. Yeah. So just we're going to separate from you. And what it comes – if you, I, if you go look at it, probably the voting – of these counties are similar the conservative counties wanting to leave the liberal counties yeah. who dominate because they're the most populous. But it seems right? like you're also going to get uh, a lot of the a lot of big corporations would be on the coastal side. Yep. And then a lot of the actual agrarian farm villages. R- real real America. Kind of, yeah. Real America. Yeah. New Almost California. Middle America. But it's a coastal middle right. America. The group said in a statement citing a decline in its essential basic services, including education, law enforcement, infrastructure, and health care. Okay. New California. So keep that on your radar. New California. Not necessarily happening, but uh, Well, it seems like New California is where we fuel up to get to California. <laughs> yeah, it's like Barstow, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Okay. So back to President Trump's health. He is- Yeah. He's killing it. Let me see. Let me get the healthiest. healthiest, I think he's the healthiest president ever. We'll see this morning. Uh, Six foot three, 239 pounds. Yeah. Conveniently on the BMI schedule or or BMI scale. Scale. Yeah. Six foot three, 239, one pound short of obese. Yeah. One pound short. Yeah. By the way, way, with along with 40% of the country or whatever the number is. True. But they just, he's just people normal. are just pointing out that on his driver's license in New York City, it says he's six foot two. Yeah. If he was six two, two thirty nine, he's obese. Yeah. But somehow he's seventy one years old and he's gained an inch. Oh yeah. He's six three. Well, he's been stretching more. Is that what it is? It's stretching. He's yeah. And then uh, Sports Illustrated, they compared him to pro athletes. Okay, yeah. Who are six foot two. Char- around the same, six Charles two, Barkley. six three, around the same. No, yeah. pro athletes, not guys that have been retired. Oh, you mean reti- Yeah, you're not saying retired pro athletes. So like Tim Tebow, right? Yeah, he's he's retired, sort of ish. He was kind of forced out because you know lack yeah. of talent generally. Um, but he's he's fit. He's on TV. You yeah. see him yeah. on on sports programming. Right. He's fit. Right. He is six foot two, two thirty six. Yeah. You put pictures of him and Trump together. No, yeah, he looks. They look a lot alike. Right. Now, is that a good comparison? You have people working out versus someone who's... Well, his is all muscle, and muscle weighs more. Okay. So he looks more fit, but he's got heavier weight on. President Trump has less muscle, right. if any, and so his is just fat. So, so he, he weighs more and looks that, plumpier. Can he be the plumper. same weight and... yes. Mike Trout, out, an outfielder oh, yeah. for the Angels, he's 6'2", awesome. 235. Uh-huh. Yeah. Almost obese. Cam Chancellor, he's a uh, Seahawks safety. He's 6'3", 232. Yeah. Jay Cutler, quarterback for the Dolphins, 6'3", 231. See, they're all nearly obese. My favorite one, <laughs> Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. What's he? He's 6'4", 230. Yeah. So here's, here's pictures. See, that's why he kneels. Next to each other. Yeah. 
But see, that's the difference. Athletes athletes wear all their weight in little muscle packs. Okay. Like a six-pack. So what you're saying is this is not necessarily a fair comparison. No. But none of these guys, by the way, are the president. Right. And none of these guys get to watch as much television as he does. Or eat fried chicken, apparently. He's now, yeah. It's not a fair comparison, but he is. He to me, he's just like a normal American. The other situation is there's photographs during the inaugural, yeah, or just before President Obama and President Trump standing next to each other. Yeah, Obama is six foot one. Right, they're the same height. Well, see, that's the problem. It or, looks or, like they are. Or does Trump slump slouch and Trump's got a Trump slump? That okay. he uses whenever he's with people that he wants to be the same height as. Is that what he does? Yeah. He's taller. So just on a visual look. We're, we're going to tell you there, why you're struggling with this. There be- is a group. Well, on Twitter, people are yeah. trying to start a girtherism. <laughs> I mean, there was birtherism, right? Yeah, now yeah, they're right. like girtherism. Like, this is real. Is he really this weight? Is he this height? The rest of it, it's like he eats, he eats poorly. That's yeah, the report. That's he eats poorly and his cholesterol is fine. There's just some questions people have. See, our guest today that we'll be talking about or talking with, yeah. uh, we're going to talk about the fact that whether you're a football fan, mm. whether you're a, a political you know, partisan, you have a tendency to evaluate others through your little spectrum. So if you, for example, uh, during the uh, Obama-McCain election – right. People thought – or the Obama-Romney election. Mm. People thought that Obama, if you were a Democrat, they thought Obama was taller than Mitt Romney, even though Mitt Romney is taller than Obama. Interesting. They thought that – No, is that just like Romney's hair? It's kind of – No. It's because when you're biased, you think people are taller or bigger than they really are. They thought Sarah Palin – was according to this researcher, they thought the the people that responded to their research thought Sarah Palin was taller than Biden. Fifty six percent of the people drew a picture of Sarah Palin in the debate being taller and bigger than Joe Biden. Did they watch the debate? Yeah, you could see there was. That's the problem. Okay, is we're all wired to hmm. to be we partisans. favor our team. Mm-hmm. In all situations. And so if you want – if people or you want uh, President Trump to be obese, he is. Is this why people buy season tickets to a losing team? Yes. Wow. But they keep pretending like they're going to win. This year is going to be different. Yes. No, no, it's not. It's never different. So – but the hard part about this whole weight thing is that it's not – nobody wants to believe that you can pound hamburgers and fillet a fish all day. And he may just do that like once a month. You don't know. It just we said that, that that's his but, favorite meal, right? But the doctor made a really good point that here's the deal. He doesn't exercise, but mm-hmm. I, we basically spent a lot of our time talking about his need to exercise and his need to eat right. He needs to better utilize executive time. And guess which one he'd rather do? Work what? on his nutrition or work on his exercise? Probably nutrition. He'd rather work on nutrition. Which I think is the majority of our country. Yeah. We'd rather change what we eat rather than go out and do something that's, physical if we don't want to do that. That's it. And there, he says the, the doctor says he's going to enlist the first lady uh-huh. in trying to help him make more healthier choices. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> we all know what it's like. All she has to do is – I mean they have chefs there, but apparently he's not loving their food – He'd, yeah, you know, he's afraid of being poisoned. Yeah, according to some reports, 
Like, was that from Fire and Fury? That was in the book, which apparently at the House subcommittee hearing, there were several copies sitting around the room with the members oh, of Congress. Rude. Really? As they were questioning, it was the uh, the Homeland Security Yeah, that's secretary. disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Well, apparently your president I was waiting for someone normal. to go, on page 49. Yeah. It says that you said, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you imagine uh, the health report from Kim Jong-un's doctor? Oh, it was perfect health. I mean, there's no such thing as more perfect health. Like 4% body fat. That's what it'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's ripped. Good stuff, folks. Straight ahead, we will be talking about uh, football fans, political partisans, and evolutionary forces. Is it something about how we have evolved as humans that makes us uh, choose teams and fight so, you know, so aggressively for our team. Is there something about that? I believe so. We'll be discussing it straight ahead. Football and politics seem like they are worlds apart, right? One deals with the ball and teams, the other deals with the country and laws. But some say that football fanatics and politicians and political pundits, even uh, even political partisans, are not all that different. Here to speak with us today is Gregory Murray. He's a professor of political science at Augusta University, also the executive director of the Association for Politics and Life Sciences. And we're honored to have you here, Gregory. Thanks for your time and thanks for being with us. Good morning, Matt, from, believe it or not, snowy Augusta. I know. I can't believe that. It's crazy. I'm sitting here looking out my window at the snow coming down. Uh. Quite unusual. It is unusual. And by the way, I love your uh, blog that you write. It's called Caveman Politics. It's on Psychology Today, and uh, you just do a great job there. Oh, thank you. You're very, you're very kind. I luckily have some really interesting material to work with. In so, fact, um, but thank you. You're very kind. That's how we found this latest and greatest. Is you, you, you bring up a really interesting point that um, fanatics, football fans, or any really sports fans or fanatic, um, also they have a lot in common with um, our political partisans, don't they? They have a tremendous amount in common with them. And, you know, I mean, the first thing that started me thinking about this was, you know, it's, it's playoff time in, <laughs> That's in right. football season. And I'm sitting there watching these folks, uh, sometimes in really, really, really frigid weather, not wearing many clothes for some reason, and <laughs> with their bodies painted crazy colors, out there rooting for a football team that, quite frankly, if they stayed at home, they could probably watch on TV in much greater comfort. And the question is, why on earth, or at least this is what came to my mind, why on earth would people go do that? And I think it's some of these forces that end up affecting football fans and political partisans and political talking heads and all those sorts of of people. Mm. And it, But it really skews, even as we were talking about President Trump's health, I mean, it even skews how you listen to the doctor talk about President Trump's health. If you don't, if you don't like President Trump, if you're not of his ilk or party, or you don't love his uh, his philosophies, um, then you're, it's going to impact how you see and understand everything that's said about him. That is that's exactly right. And what's really, uh, you know, and in, in evolutionary psychologists, people who do some of the some of the kind of work I do might even talk about if you're not a member of his tribe, 
um, you know, it's going to affect uh, how you view him, and you're more likely to view him more negatively. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I think that what this is, this is sort of an in-group, out-group bias issue, that we want to think our group uh, is better than the other group. We benefit by being members of a group in terms of, in evolutionary terms. You know, I mean, quite frankly, people in, in human ancestral time, uh, if they were a member of a group, they were certainly more likely to have access to mates, obviously, if yeah. they were a member of a group. And they were more likely to acquire other resources, shelter and food and such, um, to survive and reproduce. So uh, humans have developed this sort of ultra-sociality that, um, you know, we just like being in groups. We form into groups, and then we end up having a strong preference for our groups. And um, that group could be either our football team or our political party. Interesting. So it's I, it's we don't always think of it as tribal, but uh, you know, kind of the evolutionary biologists would say we've learned to be more tribal because um, we needed to survive in the with a group. That's exactly right. And we then our group's the best we, group. Yeah, we survived better when we were with a group. And, of course, our group, right, we were interdependent. So, um, you know, we would help our, our friends. They would help us. And we were much more likely to do that than members of another group. So there's a strong – and Dave and I, Dave Schmitz and I argue um, in this paper, there's a, you know, there's an evolutionary force involved with this that kind of drives people to, quite frankly, in some, in some, in some cases, sort of mindless devotion to whatever their particular groups are. Interesting. Talk, uh, talk for us, Greg, about the um, some of the research that and and the like the the drawings that were done as part of the research. I mean, it's it's really fascinating to see how biased we are. It, yeah, it really is. So, Dave, Dave, this was part of uh, some research that Dave had done initially, and he was kind enough to include me with it. And it goes back to even our very initial study where we had people draw um, leaders meeting each other or their ideal leader. And in this case, Dave had right around the 2008 election, which was um, Obama versus McCain, and then the 2012, which is Obama versus Romney, he basically had um, people draw pictures of them meeting. Now, this is nice, right, because you're not telling people, oh, hey, look, we're trying to figure out who's bigger in the picture or anything like that. You're just saying, hey, just draw this. They have the people doing it have no idea. What what's measuring being thought about. So we had them do that, got some really interesting pictures. But from the very broad perspective, what we found was people were more likely to draw their candidate as physically bigger hmm. than the opposing party's candidate. Now, this is crazy to me. Yeah. Now, I, I'm Quite frankly, I'm, I'm kind of a prime scientific candidate for doing this research, because when I see this sort of formidability research, I still kind of shake my head and say, I just, you know, I just can't believe we behave this way. But we found it time after time after time. And so what this showing us is, is this bias is really strong. Right? I yeah. mean, to the point where objectively, what we know, I mean, so what we knew was yes, of course, uh, Obama was taller than McCain, and actually quite a bit, but there were still a large proportion of um, Republicans who drew McCain taller. Hmm. 
On the other hand, though, um, Romney was actually a little bit about an inch taller than Obama, and people still distorted that. But what was just the most fascinating finding from this particular story was uh, we had them also draw Sarah Palin and Joe Biden meeting. And those were the vice presidential candidates in 2008, and it was really interesting because more than half of Republicans drew Sarah Palin is taller than Joe Biden, right? <laughs> Despite the fact yeah. he's actually seven inches taller. And not only that, we all walk around every day and we see that men are predominantly much bigger, much taller, much more physically formidable uh, than women are. Yeah. So it was, it, it flew in the face to a large degree of common, basically common sense. So anyhow, so that's that was this research that we did. We had some really interesting pictures, and and uh, but it, the the finding itself was fascinating. That really is, and I guess it tells us too that um, we we have this inherent bias. That it's subtle, it's quiet. I mean, I can just see them drawing the picture and not ever really questioning the height, but the just seeing that they're equal. They're they're equal in magnitude or power, but. Um, deep down, you, you can have a team, and you've seen it in sports and athletics, where your team is obviously inferior. Your team is oh, in yeah. no way, shape, or form even in the same ballpark, yet you still argue as if they are equal. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And um, it's just how we feel. It helps us. Now, I, I as a political scientist, okay, I can put my hardcore political scientist hat on yeah. or, or psychologist hat on and say, okay, so I'm, for instance, trying to assess who's really going to win a football game, right? right? Now, I've watched football all my life, but if you ask me, you know, sort of objectively, uh, could I really assess a football game and say that I have a certain probability that Team A is going to beat Team B? You know, I really don't. I can't analyze the line, you know, the offensive versus the defensive line. And I might know a little bit about how good one quarterback is versus the other. But, you know, I can't really sort of uh, realistically or effectively, you know, analyze the two teams playing each other and who is really likely to win. Well, some people, psychologists would argue and political scientists would argue um, that in situations that are complex, what we do is fall back on some of these shortcuts like this. Yeah. Right, yep. and because that helps us, that helps us come to a conclusion or to answer the question, who's going to win? Well, okay, I can't tell you if you know their offensive line is better than my offensive line, but they're my team, you know. So <laughs> true. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick my team, and the same thing with my candidates. I can't really tell you when push comes to shove, getting down into tax policy and immigration policy and all that. I mean, yeah, I have a general sense of whether I oppose or support certain things in it, but there are a lot of details when yeah. you get into issues like that. Well, this is one way. Partisanship is one way to sort that out. If I just say I'm going with the plan or the candidate that's on my team, I don't have to expend all those mental resources you know, really assessing and investigating tax policy and thinking about it and all that sort of stuff. I just say, hey, 
I'm going with my team. Yeah. So there's a psychological uh, benefit to doing this as well. So it, it helps us psychologically. It helps us make better decisions or like faster decisions, but it right. doesn't necessarily help in the accuracy of the decision. It's also interesting how, how confident we are. So we can be incredibly oh, yeah. confident. So where's the confidence coming from if it's not coming from the facts? You know, actually, it's, it's, it's interesting you ask that because there is a lot of research that shows that um, people are not necessarily more accurate when they use these types of shortcuts or, as they're technically called, heuristics. Yeah. And, um, but pe- we know that people do use them. We also know that it's, it's actually really interesting. People who are, are wrong are actually more certain in their attitudes oftentimes than people that than people who are right. And I have not studied that that issue in detail, but I think a lot of it comes down to people um, not wanting to say that they're wrong, so they really cling to those attitudes that they've expressed or those beliefs they've had. And again, quite frankly, it takes more effort mentally or cognitively to process an argument that's when somebody says that you're wrong, um, right, than it is to when somebody says that you're correct. Yeah. So if you say that I'm wrong about something, then I have to go back and say, Ugh. one, emotionally, you know, I don't like being told I'm wrong, but two, I need to make sure. So I need to go back and evaluate everything that they're suggesting. Ugh. So and much that, work. Right? And, that's co- and that's cognitively costly. Yeah. So I don't want to do that. So maybe it just makes me dig in my um, heels even further. But I mean, I, again, this is not something I've studied a great deal other than just knowing that, it, that that's one of the things that happens. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Greg Murray, who is the executive director of the Association for Politics and the Life Sciences and an associate professor of political science at Augusta University. He also writes uh, for the Caveman Politics blogs on political or on psychology today. Um Greg, so what are we, I guess, what are we supposed to do with this knowledge um, when we're wearing the goggles of partisanship um, or fanaticism? Uh, because, again, we feel this confidence, I guess, at some level of us because we are – we belong to a group. We belong to a group, hey, that may even be in the majority, 53 percent or whatever. Um, yeah. is, there, is there a way that we can, we can somehow turn off – that, that that evolutionary approach to just being tribal and instead seek to be effective or, you know, more based on some facts. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a couple of aspects to this that we can take away from it and just being aware of it. And one is to recognize when we're expressing an opinion, realize, you know, particularly a political opinion, say, realize that we are probably looking at it through our partisan lens, right. um, you know, and we need to make sure and discount. And one of the tests I think about when I'm looking at this sort of stuff is, is, is there anything that the person in the opposing party says that I can agree with? Right? Yeah. yeah. And if I get to the point where I say that person is talking and there is not a single thing that they're saying that I agree with, I want to be aware, and I try to be, because this happens to me from time to time, you know, and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, am I really, is this just my partisanship blinding me on this? Certainly, in these really complicated issues, there's something uh, that that person is saying, you know, that I can agree with. So that's one thing is just being aware of it. And I think probably 
I'm very concerned about uh, sort of the tone of the political um, discussion that's going on. And I worked in politics for several years. I'm not really comfortable with the, with how personalized it's become. Mm. Um, and the sense that, you know, if you dis- disagree with me, you're a terrible, evil person. And I-, I think if we just realize that sometimes when people are disagreeing with us, that maybe it's our partisan, you know, our partisan bias that's kind of kicking in. Yeah. Maybe it'll keep us, it'll, it'll, you know, reel us in a little bit and keep us maybe from saying, being quite as harsh uh, in what we say. So that's a couple of things yeah. that I think, I mean, because in the end, in a democracy, you know, it's about compromise, and if you're calling somebody terrible names all the time, um, you know, they're they're probably not going to want to compromise with you right. um, in any way. So I think that's I, that's that's the way I use this, and quite frankly, you know, when I'm dealing with, particularly when I teach, you know, intro, introduction to American government, I spend a lot of time on the semester talking about that exact issue and just being aware it does not mean it's going to change your opinions in any way. You're probably still going to disagree with that person on the vast majority of uh, issues. But what it also means, but what it might mean is if you're aware of it, that you're at least a little more thoughtful, you take a little more time, um, you maybe avoid a knee-jerk sort of reaction. Yeah. It'll just slow you down a little bit. And I think that's really useful. That's such great advice. And also, any advice on... Uh, I, I mean, I guess if we change the thought, we eventually change the feeling. Um, but it seems like, too, we we should be watching out for our confidence that's not necessarily substantiated. Um, is, is there anything we can do to to maybe, maybe I don't know, remain humble or, or questioning of our what we're feeling that feels so right, even yeah. when we're wrong? I don't know. I'm not sure I have any sense of that. I, I'm not even sure that doesn't come from, you know, mom and dad growing up. Yeah, no, right, exactly. I, I don't. I I don't know. Um, it's it's something. I don't know. It's something that you learn. Um, like it's funny you say that because I was actually talking to a grad student um, actually yesterday, and uh, she was writing some stuff with some real certainty in a paper she was doing, and I said, you know, we're we're scientists. We not we're not certain <laughs> about many things. So maybe if you could say, you know, maybe this is going to happen, or it suggests this is going to happen. You know, that's that's sort of uh, you know a, a better way to go, at least in terms of what scientists did. Maybe taking that over to the real world. Um, you know, where we as people we can have our opinions. They can be strong opinions. Um, but that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily it's right. Yeah. And um, I think we just need to be aware of that. And again, I don't, I don't know how you really, I don't know how you train no, that. No, you, you probably have to be looking, and you have to be aware that it's an issue. Well, because it gets back to that thing you're talking, you were talking about earlier about people, people who are wrong digging in their heels even more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right? Or we talked that we talked about. Um, you know, and you just have to be. MPs, people just do that, and you just have to be aware of it. 
and hopefully that's a thing that people can overcome. I don't know if you have to be massively embarrassed at some point to overcome your certitude about everything or what, but, um, uh, you know, it's a tough problem. Well, and if you live long enough, you will be massively embarrassed. Of course, that's absolutely true. I agree with that. So true. Gregory, we appreciate you. Greg Murray's his name, and uh, he does the great work. If you go to Caveman Politics, uh, just Google Caveman Politics. You'll find a blog on Psychology Today, plus his wonderful work there as an associate professor of political science at Augusta University. Good stuff, folks. Uh, Straight ahead, we'll do a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, there's this there's this concept I teach when I coach with my clients about it's called uh, well, there's two concepts. One is called assumed necessity. Assumed necessities are those things that we all assume have to be a certain way. And I don't know if you've noticed um, many times those things get upset uh, or tipped over or sometimes just don't play out the way you thought they would. Assumed necessity could be something, you know, you assume that uh, a healthy marriage is 50-50, right? Or we're each giving our best part. And that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because you that's kind of the contract, the obligation, the belief you bought into. And yet eventually what you might find out is many times in a marriage, it's not 50-50. It might be you're pulling a lot more of the weight for a period of time. And so um, assume necessity is something that if if you're really going to fight – how things have to be um, and not allow things to kind of rotate and move and be what they need to be for a given period of time, then then you might set yourself up. I, I learned that by watching my father-in-law take care of my mother-in-law, where for a long period of time, it wasn't 50-50. It was, it was him doing everything for her. And so if you assume that it has to be a certain way, you'll probably end up being disappointed. Another rule that I teach uh, when I work with clients is this uh, concept, and you've heard me mention it before, I believe, on the show called logical force. And logical force is this idea that we were just talking about with Greg Murray where it feels logical and you use your logic to justify your behavior in your life or your in your marriage. But in reality, sometimes what's logical isn't moral, right? It might be logical to leave your partner if they do something uh, that's harmful to the relationship. It's just logical. And if you went and surveyed all of your your friends and your coworkers and everybody, then nine out of ten of them would say, oh, I would leave him too for the exact same thing. But um, because it's logical doesn't make it moral, meaning doesn't make it aligned to your moral code, to your moral belief system. And so a lot of us argue logic, and we even we see it being uh, argued in football and politics. All the logic of why it's okay to say something or do something politically, but it still might be immoral. It still might be wrong morally. <laughs> It might be wrong to name call somebody and and you know embarrass them and shame them in the political world. Now logically it makes sense because we're trying to win an election. I mean how many times during the elections do you hear someone say, "Well, I don't like what this person stands for, 
But logically, we need a Republican in there. So I'm going to vote for the Republican. The problem with logical force is all you get in the end is logic. You don't get anything that's moral. You don't get anything that's ethical. You don't get anything that's healthy. Well, yeah, but then once we do the immoral thing to get the moral thing, then I will be more inclined to get more future good moral things. Oh, really? Is that how this works? So one of the rules I just suggest to a lot of uh, my clients and especially when we're trying to, to make better decisions in our lives is at some point we need to go back to what we value, to what our principles are, to what our highest principles are, the ones that drive our spirituality, the ones that drive our essence, the ones that drive our deeper sense of who we are. What, what is the decision that needs to be made here, even if it's a hard decision – what decision needs to be made that is moral, then that way we can at least have the support of our moral uh, cause and have what we call moral authority. I'd much rather in the end have moral authority than logical authority, if that makes sense. I'd rather do what's right than what everyone else deems is, is smart or logical because sometimes the smartest things we do they're immoral, and but incredibly logical. They're good for everybody except a few. And the sad thing about having true power with people and true power to lead people is at some point you'll find out your greatest leaders are the ones that made the moral decision, even to their detriment. They just did what was right. Anyway, a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. We'll take a break. Continue the journey with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Hey, uh, what, what would you do if all of a sudden your your school was saying, okay, kids, no more friends. You're not allowed to have friends. We're going to ban kids from having best friends. Sorry. No best friends. Yeah. Which apparently is happening. This is, this is apparently, it's a trend in uh, European schools and now some American schools. This is out of uh, U.S. News and World Reports. Okay. The, uh, let me find is trying to see if the name here of the person who wrote this is included in the print that I made because she's a psychologist. Yes. And her name is uh, Dr. Barbara Greenberg. Okay. She's in Connecticut. Yeah. 21 years practicing. She's been doing Child it. psychologist. Yeah. So the, the idea is um, certainly in life we all benefit from having close friends and confidants, those who really get us. On the other hand, there is something dreadfully exclusionary occurring when a middle schooler tells the girl sitting next to her that she is best friends with the girl sitting in front of them. Of mm. course, this scenario plays out in a variety of ways, but the child after child comes into her therapy office distressed when their best friend is now given someone else this coveted title. Yeah, now it's about a title. So now we're dealing with, now this person's my best friend and you're excluded from being my best yeah. friend and that means a lot and that label's important. Wow. So some schools are trying to, at an early age, just teach kids best friends is not something we do here. We have friends with everyone. We're friends with everybody on earth. And so we can protect everyone from having this sure. social stress of this person now doesn't like me. 
the same level as someone is else. Is there going to be at some point a stage where we then allow people to have a best friend and then suffer the pains of the fact that your best friend has a best friend that's not you? I'm not sure. I mean, because this is kind of life. This does is this how seem life like works. This is going too far. Well, I mean, it makes it's a neat theory. It's a neat idea that we should like everyone and care for everyone. And but I think the minute you're regulating best friends, yeah. But but I mean, it, it's it would be nice if we could just say everyone's our friend. I mean, to me, it seems like a really great point to teach as a teacher. Yeah, that you got to be careful when you say stuff like that because how would it feel? If you weren't a best friend to somebody, then you'd feel left out. So just think – I mean I would just do it more as a point, but I wouldn't do it as a rule. A rule. Like you're staying after school. Do you have a best friend? <laughs> Drop and give me 20. <laughs> but but, but I, I don't know. So don't it's know. more of a vocabulary thing? Yeah. To me it just seems People like – People are still going to have friends they play lesson. with, but they're trying to teach that – we're not using. We're not weaponizing this word <laughs> to hurt your child. Right. That's a and, microaggression. And at the same time, parents need to sort of chill out and realize that best friends exist. And yeah. This and is a and thing. by the way, they're going. This is going to happen forever. Eventually, but, you're, you'll move into a neighborhood, and then you'll see your neighbors going out to dinner with the other neighbors, and you weren't invited. But and then it says, but but teach your children about the importance of having close friends, but also being friends to a wide circle yeah. of people. Yeah. Not yeah. just hanging Draw out with that a one bigger person. bigger circle. Yeah. And eventually that would get back to what we talked about earlier. Draw a bigger circle of fans or, or you know, teams you love, political parties, things you read. Yeah. Broaden your horizons, folks. That's the advice from Terry South. <laughs> we'll continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Cole. Jeff is on sick batical. He's out. Uh, as all good professors do, he's out supposedly studying and uh, getting a richer education, like a sabbatical, but he's doing it while being sick. And I know he's listening to the show. I've never understood that phrase, sabbatical, what it really meant. I think it just means you're taking a break. Oh, it has the word bath, like bat, like bat, like Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Okay. So they're taking a semester of rest or a year of rest. Or a couple days of rest. Yeah. In Jeff's case, it's just going to be a couple days. Mm-hmm. He's uh, He's got the gombu, I assume. Um, he's not talking publicly about it, unlike the president of the United States that has his doctor speak for an hour to talk about his health because people have so many questions about it. It went for an hour. It went for an hour. and I didn't even know that until I was watching what the news last night. And they said an hour-long press conference. Like, oh, by the way, it's the most it's the most we questions a, answered by this White House. We have a government shutdown on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. There's but, no agreement on anything leading up to this. Okay. They can't even agree on the short term spending bill within the Republican right. side of this argument. So are you more worried about that or yeah. the physical health of your president? It's what it is. He's he's the guy. I mean physical and mental. It, it's a big deal because if you went to the doctor and had a physical. Yeah, if. And then like hypothetically, 
Then you then your doctor stood in front of the press yep. and a bunch of people that didn't like you for one hour and answered questions. Would yeah. you not be nervous? Yeah, I, I w- it wouldn't be comfortable. But uh, the guy did say that the president ordered me to come out here and answer all of your questions. That's See, that, how it was phrased. That's a good president. Yeah. He he ordered get out there and especially the mental cognitive part. Yeah. Do that part too. And in fact, uh, do, do you know what is involved in that test? I don't know flashcards. No, it's a hard <laughs> throwing it's a, darts at a wall or something. No, okay. it is a very difficult test. In fact, um, you won't believe how complicated it is. Yeah. It's again, it's a thirty point test. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get it. The, the test is called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, also known as MOCA. MOCA. Huh. It's a, it's a well-known, well-tested assessment that doctors can quickly use to detect co- mild cognitive dysfunction. So if somebody has cognitive, cognitive dysfunction, this would be able to get it on – I mean, if they have extreme, I'm sure it would come up in this as well. But this is going to get just somebody that's just gently you know, starting to have cognitive impairment. The 30-point test takes about 10 minutes and asks the patient to perform a simple batch of memory and mental tasks. Listen to this. Okay. Including you have to draw a line uh, between a number and a letter in ascending order. Okay. So you have to go 1A, 2B, 3C, 4D. Do that. So these are like sobriety tests almost. It kind of is, yeah. Okay. But you're not on the side of the road in the middle of a snowstorm. Understood. Yeah. The tasks include drawing a line. <laughs> it also includes um, uh, the patient is asked to draw a clock and put numbers on it. Huh. You're, the patient is asked to draw a cube. Okay. So he has to draw a cube. Like a 3D object or uh-huh. just – okay. You have to name – Basically, a lion, a rhinoceros, and a camel. From pictures? Uh-huh. Okay. There's a memory section where they read the, a list of words. Subjects must repeat them, do two trials, do a recall after five minutes. So I give you like five words, and you have to try to recall them. Face, While they try to distract you? Face, velvet, church, daisy, red. Huh. Okay. I mean, like I do horrible on that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I forget things after two minutes. No, nah, yeah. I even forgot. Whatever those words were that you just what read. What you just said. <laughs> it's so weird. They, um, Likewise, they... last night, uh, for some reason, we're flipping around. I think uh, Ellen DeGeneres has a game show. Yeah. And I got all the final round questions correct. They oh, were just, really? They were just photographs of cartoon characters. I nailed it. I would have won $100,000. Wow. So just, yeah, it was just comparison to It was $100,000? Yeah. I mean, the guy went through several rounds, but then they went, here's some cartoon characters, name them. And it was like Charlie Brown and SpongeBob SquarePants, and yeah. he won 100 grand. But See, also, sometimes they have to answer those questions when they're being spun around on a spinning table. Oh, is that or how it works? Yeah, I just, I just held saw up like, by a wedgie. Or, oh, wow. wow. Yeah, it's it's an interesting a, little show. Yeah, I just watched the final round and went, well, I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Like, similarly, in this case, with the, with the cognitive uh, test here for the president, he made it. Yeah. He killed it. He didn't. 20, but, a score of 26 is considered normal. Your president, 30 out of 30. If he was off, yeah. you could see where this, some of this could trip him up. That's right. So he's not probably um, cognitively impaired. Yeah. You just disagree with his presentation. Or, I mean, I do believe he might be a little emotionally impaired at times. Like when he gets hijacked by CNN, 
We talk about emotional intelligence. Yeah, then he yeah. goes off a little bit. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he empathy. has mental health issues. He's he's shown he has a, a you know, struggles with empathy for others. Yeah. I mean, but who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's going on. Plus Steve Bannon, everybody wants to talk to Steve Bannon. Right. It's and, funny because some people can't. Yeah. They're not uh, allowed. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But today Steve's the bride. Everybody yeah. wants to talk to Steve. But now he only wants to talk to Mueller's group, I and guess. Corey Lewandowski's lawyer, lawyered up, so he's apparently looking forward to being questioned by somebody. Oh, boy. So what this might be telling us, too, though, is— And that would be all the campaign advisors, right? The campaign yeah. chairman? But it seems like now we may be wrapping up some of this because all these bigger names are now coming in. Now they yep. may be scheduling President Trump's interview. Hope Hicks was in on yeah. Friday, I think, for quite a while. But she went to the offices. She didn't. She wasn't subpoenaed or in court she or just, grand jury. She just or showed up and brought bagels. Yeah. She just talked to him for a while. Hey, everybody. Thought I'd come answer questions. <laughs> That's awesome. I Did mean, you like the blueberry schmear or was it oh, – sorry. <laughs> Could I get the um, harvest blend? So, uh, OK. Lots going on in D.C. as well. What else should we be paying attention to there, Terry? Senator Lindsey Graham missed the good – he apparently missing the good old days. During a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Tuesday, the South Carolina Republican lamented that President Trump had changed in a disturbing way over the last week, clearly referencing the president's disparagement of Haiti, El Salvador, and unnamed African nations. Last Tuesday, we had a president who I was proud to golf with call my friend who understood immigration had to be bipartisan, but he also understood the idea that we had to do it with compassion, Graham said before making a plea to the president. He goes, I don't know where that guy went. I want him back. After he made his remark, Graham uh, ran into reporters outside the hearing and told them that he believed the president's staff was to blame for this whole ordeal. He goes, I think someone on his staff gave him really bad advice between 11, or 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock on Thursday, Steve Miller. Oh, wow. Uh, he added, we cannot make a deal on immigration with people at the White House who have an irrational view on how to fix immigration. The theory is that Stephen Miller, the uh, speechwriter, general aide to yeah, the president. The, the senior buddy. Who is really motivated by immigration issues, stacked that room with uh, immigration hardliners on the Republican side who would not agree to anything when it came to DACA or any of these types of situations, kind of blowing up the meeting instead of bringing in people who were interested in making a deal. Interesting. Seeing that this has yeah. to do with the government shutdown yeah. on Friday. So instead of trying to come to an agreement, he brought in people who weren't going to agree. And that's what Lindsey Graham's theory that he's not referring no, to is what he's saying. No, this is easier to figure out. Oh, okay. Just go watch Fox News and find out what was on Fox News yep. between 10 and noon. A little timestamp there. Then you'll know exactly what happened. Asked Tuesday why President Trump doesn't take Senator Chuck Schumer's advice and prove he's, quote, not a racist by making a deal on DACA. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders called that an outrageous claim and asked in return, if Trump really is racist, then why did NBC give him a show for a decade on TV? Oh, that means ABC's racist. Well, NBC. Oh, NBC's racist. It was a reasonable question from a Fox News correspondent, John Roberts, that says more about the network that hired Trump to host The Apprentice than does the man currently occupying the Oval Office, the person writing the art and article kind of So I guess what we're saying is if he passes a DACA bill, then he's not a racist? That's what Chuck Schumer's trying to trick him into doing. Well, that's redunculous. I know. 
Okay. But he said it, and so right. it comes up the next day. North Korean athletes will apparently uh, arrive at the Winter Olympics with 230 cheerleaders in tow, according to officials in Seoul who have held talks with the reclusive nation in anticipation of the event. The Games will take place next month in South Korea. Meanwhile, Japanese foreign minister called the use of such tactics as a charm offensive and warned other leaders not to be, or, or to be skeptical. It is not the time to ease pressure or reward North Korea, he said. The fact that North Korea is engaging in dialogue could be interpreted as proof that the sanctions are working. Mm-hmm. They're feeling the pressure, yeah. and they're actually yeah. kind of caving. The AP reports that the two nations will march together during the opening ceremony. Oh, so all great. these things they've been working on are happening when it yeah. comes to the Olympics. Now, um, okay, so are these actual cheerleaders like dressed like cheerleaders? I don't know. Or are these just fans that are going to be cheering for them? They might just be fans. Don't you think a lot of people would cheer for the North Koreans? I don't know. I mean, just in the spirit of of the Olympics. Sure. Everybody should cheer for the North spirit of Korea. the Olympics. Yes, whatever that is. Well, and especially because they you could be bombed at any minute. <laughs> this threat, yeah. Hey, good job. So uh, they're going to be in the games. They're going to march in the opening ceremonies. They're bringing cheerleaders. It's like a bowl game. You have to bring your own cheerleaders and the band. Do they have a marching band? Because that may. would be they fantastic. May. They have a marching army. They have that parade all the time. Can but you there's, no... there's some guy with a tuba. <laughs> NK is on the yeah, tuba. Yeah, yeah. It'll be great. Uh, and finally, there are many approaches to avoiding paying a fee for excessive uh, luggage when you're traveling in the air, by air these days. One man flying out of Iceland, uh, he tried boarding the plane with 10 shirts and eight pairs of pants on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so instead of paying the f- extra fee for the carry-on, he put all of his clothes on. Oh, he just, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So he just wore everything. Yeah, the video uh, he posted to Twitter, Facebook, one of them. He's wandering around and looks like the kid from uh, the movie The Christmas Story, yeah, the yeah. little boy that can't put his arms down. Right. Yeah, that guy. He looks like him. <laughs> Is he not hot and sweaty? I imagine he was. He's just trying to get back to England. Says on Twitter, Williams said that he couldn't afford the excess baggage fees, about one hundred twenty-five dollars. Yeah. As a result of being left homeless in Iceland for over a week, he also claimed British Airways had told him he could board the flight if he wore all of his clothes at once, and then they rejected him. Of course, British Airways says we don't do that. Well, he's got to have his arms down. He can't. His yeah. arms would be in the face of his his neighbor, or would be hanging out in the aisle. Yeah. He's going to lose it. It'd be a problem. When that snack cart comes by, they don't look and make sure they're not going to hit you. They just ram into you. Oh, apologize. Would well, you like a free yeah. What if your seatmate like starts taking like 20 you know, levels of clothes off? Right. A little, yeah. This is just like going to... And then, well, I mean, about an hour before the flight's over, he's got to start putting them all back on. He looks pretty thick. Yeah. With all that, all the clothes on and winter coat and hat. I mean, he's in Iceland, right? So right, right, right. He dressed appropriately. Man. So don't do that is what they're trying no, to say. No, that's bad. That's very bad. Okay, uh, that's good news. That's really good news um, that the I didn't realize the airlines would be so helpful. Little, I mean, to a point. Little, he tried another airline, did the same thing. They said no, and the third airline finally let him go home. Like that. I don't know if quite like that. He may have just they wave a baggage fee just to get him out. Maybe the airport was just tired of him wandering around yeah. causing problems. Hey, how about you guys? <laughs> how about you? Can you uh, get me on this plane? What's it going to take to get me on this plane right now? He's got his thumb out on the tarmac, <laughs> just waiting for someone. Anybody? So uh, bad news about your retirement. What? 
Uh, Bitcoin plunged by 25% to a six-week low early today due to growing fears of a regulatory crackdown in South Korea. Oh, boy. Come on. China's already cracking down. South Korea's next. Everybody's after my Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency briefly dropped below $10,000. If you remember a couple weeks ago, it was at 20000 per Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's down to 10000 a Bitcoin. That's a big loss uh, for those people looking to retire off Bitcoin. Uh, whoever bought at the top of the market, too. Or mortgaged homes or whatever oh, they did. South Korea has walked back a vow to ban sales of Bitcoin, but the country's finance minister said the shutdown of virtual currency exchanges is still one of the options open to the government. Warren Buffett, I believe it was, said this is just going to disappear. Yeah. This isn't going to work. He, uh, when he said that, he said, I'm, I'm headed off to speak to a group of young investors, some college students that are working towards a career in finance. And he goes, they're all going to talk about Bitcoin. I have no idea about Bitcoin because it's not worth learning about. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that's going to disappear. And that's a guy that knows his money. Yeah. Yeah. That's good so, news. That's so, really good news. Yeah. Watch your retirement if it's in Bitcoin. Uh, you're you're a big Xbox player, right? Mm, I have a PlayStation. Oh, you're a big PlayStation But they're all, player. I mean, yeah. And you play Call of Duty? Uh, I have old versions of the game. I played it with my son the other day. The World War II, the new one that came out? No, I played Black Ops. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which? It's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. Yeah? Um, I didn't like it, yeah. quite honestly. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love shooting someone, you know. <laughs> As much as I love doing anything. Right, sure. But it's it's just intense. Yeah. So this woman... Gets over the top. A young woman got her boyfriend a new Call of Duty game for his Xbox. And a very generous... You know, that's a gift. That's a great gift. And every woman... I mean, that's like the perfect gift for a guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this game, though, however, came with a special set of rules that were attached... Ashley Davidson created a list of five rules for her boyfriend, Blake Perry, including statutes requiring him to put the game down if she calls and to keep her entertained if he's playing the game in her presence. I mean, this is a smart woman. Realizing he needs the game because, I mean, he's violent. (laughs) No, I don't know why. Uh, She made a list of rules. Uh, Davison, a student at the University of Central Oklahoma, even included a space for Perry to sign the agreement that required he not forget about his girlfriend while playing the game. So would you sign such an agreement? If it, Now, she's allowing time to actually play the game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you have to obey the rules. You sure. have to entertain me while you're playing the game. Ooh. And you must remember me. While you are engaged in said game. Is she playing with you? No, probably not. Oh. See, that's the problem is you need to put all your focus. The game's difficult. These controllers have like 20-something buttons on them. So yeah. there's all these oh, things no, you need to do. that's what I hated do. about it. They're very, very intricate. Yeah. And you can't just be like having some common, you know, just some conversation with no. your wife while you're trying to save the world. Because well, that's see, what you're not, doing. They're not married yet. They're not, well, I mean. So they don't know how to do that. Also, it, Yet is probably a yeah. loose. They're probably not going to get married at this but rate. But she's not going to sit there and try to have a constructive conversation to help the game. She's going to want to talk about, say, her day. Yeah. What did so and so do? Well, no. At you, the you, when you said it, when you said that, you kind of snarled. It's like, a better situation day. if she lets him have his time. But it's limited. He's not going to do like a six-hour run here. It's maybe an hour. That's his time, uh, and then they can have their time. But she's saying she wants. I know. Her time during his time. That's just unreasonable. Really? Um, She has to put the game down if she calls. 
Is that mm. unreasonable? I don't know. Speakerphone exists. No, but like, no, no, no. During the call, you yeah. have to put the game down. You have really? to holster your weapon. Well, th- does she guarantee that it's going to be interesting, the conversation? No. That's mm. not part of the contract. Now, if he wants to contractually obligate her to that. That's what I would have a counter proposal that your phone call and conversation must be yeah. interesting. Then she'll just do the takeaway and say, Let's, okay, don't worry about it. Let's just not do the game. Yeah, see? That, and then she's she's not negotiating a good faith here. Yeah. She has to – he has to keep her entertained. And um, she, they made, she made it a legal document and then she posted yeah. it on Twitter. Yeah, and know. so far she has 30,000 likes. I would have a lawyer check that out first before you sign anything. Because you could really – you could ruin your gameplay right. for the rest of your life. He sounds like a serious gamer. Yeah. So he's going to value – this is a part of what he enjoys. This is part of his entertainment. He enjoys yeah. this. She needs to kind of respect that if like you're going to have a relationship. Maybe he's going to have to choose. Maybe she's asking too much. Maybe he can just scrap up 60 bucks somewhere. Yeah, maybe he needs a not... life and just go pay it for himself. <laughs> pay the fine? Yeah, but it was cute. It was a bonding experience where really? the, he was like, hey, babe, I'll do anything. I'll do anything just to be with you. And she'll be like, great, then turn off your game. But <laughs> I'm in the middle of a I'll campaign. I'll do almost anything. <laughs> Honey, I've, I'm freeing the world. I'm but, saving World War II. But if he's on a team, because yeah. it is a team-based game on some levels, yeah. if he's on a team, what about his responsibility to his teammates? But isn't it about love? Because once you choose I to be with each other— I think there's room in life for both. Yeah, says the gamer. There's your team and the person that loves you. Cleave unto your wife and unto none other. When's the last time I played video games by myself? Probably about five years ago. So you play on a team. No, no, no. Just meaning I don't, don't play, play on a team. But I mean even just turning on the, the game Good. just to – I don't Good. play. I don't have any time. The Good. other side is my son's around and he always wants to play his games. So we, we play his games. Good. Don't play your games in front of your son or you'll destroy him even more we, than we, you have. We right. open like 15 new characters on the uh, Batman game we have. So it's great. There's like way like 45 characters you can choose to be. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. He loves it. We're just flying around blowing Do stuff up. Do they shoot each other? Oh. Of course. But it's Legos. They explode into Lego bricks and then they just reassemble and you keep going. It sounds bloody. No, not really. It's Legos. Man. Okay. We just got the penguin. <sighs> oh, good. He was only like 25,000 little Lego bricks. It was fun. Really? Yeah. That sounds like you and your boy are having fun. It is. He enjoys it. And even more importantly, your wife has a great break. And she gets about an hour and a half of no six-year-old. Except she has two six-year-olds. Well, I'm mentally sure. And she does approach it that direction, too. I'm sure she does. (laughs) She's like, you are six. She She goes, I'm home with my kids. And I go, wait a second. That seemed to include. She goes, yes, it includes you. And I go, okay, good. Just check it. She's a smart woman. (laughs) Smart woman. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about uh, leading in the moment with a leadership expert talking about the book Impromptu, Leading in the Moment. Awesome stuff to uh, help you know how to respond as a leader in those difficult, you know, odd, everyday moments. Straight ahead.
One of the characteristics of great leaders is their ability to think on their feet and respond on the spot. They are able to inspire and influence in everyday situations, whether it be in the elevator, in the hallway, in a meeting. Yet many of us are afraid to speak up in these situations. We are afraid of being judged, of being criticized, or really we're worried that we just wouldn't have anything to say in the moment. So here to speak with us today about leadership and uh, her new book, Impromptu, Leading in the Moment, is uh, Judith Humphrey. She is uh, a founder of the Humphrey Group, a premier leadership communications firm, and also taught uh, communication courses at York University before entering the business world. Judith, thank you so much for being with us today. Matt, it's a pleasure. This is, I think, an essential leadership skill is the ability to kind of to handle the, the moment, the impromptu, you know, opportunity to speak, isn't it? It's very important. It's more important today than ever. I mean, impromptu speaking has always been something that people need to be good at in everyday situations, whether you're talking to a child, whether you're talking to your partner or a colleague in the community or or somebody in business. But the business world has changed, and there's much more impromptu speaking going on now. Yeah, we hear about... Um, you know, the the advancement of technology and everybody has their app that can get them so much information. Do, do you see in your experience, are people with all of this technology, are they getting better at public speaking and kind of the spontaneous, impromptu speaking, or are they are they losing their edge? Well, they're having more opportunities to speak impromptu, and that's why I wrote the book, because I think there are definitely skills that need to be learned and mastered to be an effective impromptu speaker. But the technology puts power in everybody's hands. Everybody's a knowledge worker. Everybody is a leader or a potential leader. And so these conversations can happen at any level, um, in any situation, you know, the elevators, the corridors, and meetings, and so forth. In fact, um, uh, today I will go do uh, some podcasts. I will sit down and be interviewed for... Uh, um, YouTube videos. I, I just met with a, an organization that does online dating, but they do it all through video. So this this need to actually speak is being is now being heightened. And now you've got to be able to just kind of pull out some YouTube video and make it work. What are some of the What are some of the principles that you teach um, uh, in your book, Impromptu? Well, one of the important things is to be able to read your audience to really understand where they're coming from. Um, so you start with the audience, whether it's a, a, you know, a discussion with your spouse or whether it's a discussion with your boss. You want to understand where they're coming from. And then you want to really know how to organize your thoughts and get to your point. And the book has a template for doing that. So is uh, so you got to know your audience. That's kind of the the basic, the most basic, healthy rule I think to any communication endeavor. And um, do you also have to know your medium, right? Through the the medium through which you'll be speaking. You do. Obviously, face to face is always the best. But there are other avenues today, and you want to think whether your message is going to come across well, whether tone of voice matters. If tone of voice and body language matter, and they usually do, it's much better to be in front of the other person when you're speaking rather than making a phone call or sending an email. Oh, I mean, 
I just in the last week, I've done conference calls, speaker phones, live video <laughs> chats. There's so many, and, and every one of them has their own kind of idiosyncrasies, their own benefits. Um, how do you really yeah. get to prepare for all of them, or do you not try to prepare for all of them, but just do you have other principles that allow me to just handle the moment? Preparation is absolutely important. In fact, the subtitle of my book, uh, or the, the phrase on the front of my book, is prepare to be spontaneous. Mm. So preparation is important. And, and anybody who thinks that impromptu is the same thing as winging it is going to f- get into trouble. Uh, I'll give you an example. I know you talk, talk a lot about relationships and the importance of relationships, and impromptu speaking is a fabulous way of building relationships whether it's with family members or with, you know, business associates. But one of the impromptu talks that I gave, which I prepared for, was suggesting to my then boyfriend that we get married. Ah. (laughs) And um, I thought about it. I thought about whether he was ready. I felt he was ready to say yes. And asked me, so I'd ask him. And then I prepared my script so I jotted down some notes about how I was going to start, how, what, what message I was going to deliver, what points I would put forward to elaborate that message, and how I would conclude. And I put those in writing and put them in my head and then went and spoke what appeared to be spontaneously, but it was actually very well crafted. Yeah. No, I, I, I noticed that a lot, but it is – um, the whole, there is kind of a, a paradox to what you're saying. Prepare to be spontaneous. It it takes preparation, and then you pull it off. Like, man, you're a genius. You didn't even think about that. But uh, I, I guess too, um, should we keep up the illusion that it was spontaneous, or should we sit there and say, oh no, I worried about this all night? Should we be I honest about our prep? Good. I think it look you look very smart. People look very smart, very clear-minded when they appear to be speaking spontaneously and yet they have a clear idea they're getting across, a persuasive idea. I think that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. It does set the expectation that you can do it again and you can do it again and um I, I just got asked to MC a wedding like a half uh, a wedding dinner about a half hour before the dinner began. I was just going there to hang out. Next thing I know, I'm the mm-hmm. MC. Is it uh, so? I mean, it does it does heighten the expectations, but it also you if you've done it enough, your ability is higher too. Yes, absolutely, because you master the skills. First of all, you have to know your subject. You have to know what you're talking about. If you're honoring someone, you have to know something about that individual. And then you have to collect your thoughts to the point where you say, this is the point I want to make about this person or this situation. So that really should be in your mind before you start speaking. Then if you're in a meeting and and you haven't had a chance to prepare a full mental script, then you can think about the proof points as you're speaking. But always have that focus, that single idea that you want to get across. That's good. What do we do with the emotion? Uh, it seems like a lot of times, Judith, what what really makes this difficult is, you know, not the content. It's just my emotion, my fear that I might have as I'm trying to be all impromptu and speak well, on true. impromptu. It's true. And it can be overwhelming and it can actually scare you to the point where you forget what you wanted to say. So I would say preparation 
is a way of uh, calming yourself, um, focusing yourself, and gaining more confidence because you know where you're going with that script. And you know that it's an important message to deliver. Preparation um, is everything when it comes to impromptu. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So as we as, as uh, and you're convinced just in all of your experience that this can be learned. I mean, it sounds like a lot of times we think that speakers are just kind of born and not raised. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is that true? Is the is speaking something that really anybody can get good at if they exercise it enough? Absolutely. You know, I've been in the speaking business. Um, I built a company for thirty years. Saw so many clients leaders at all levels um, gain these skills and feel very comfortable speaking on any stage. Um, So I know for a fact that it can be learned. In fact, one of the reasons I believe I went into communications was I was quite shy as a child. So my whole life has been spent building my own skills, and really preparation is what I've learned to do successfully and with a deep commitment. But it's it's a lot of fun, and when you can communicate on the stage, it's worth it all. Tie it to uh, tie it for us, Judith, to leadership, because I think a lot of times we think, um, you know, that leaders just are about charisma; they're about certain things. But what does the what does the leadership have to do with my ability to be spontaneous and and speak in the on, in the impromptu? It's really important. And by leadership, we're not referring only to the top executives. We're referring to leaders at all levels of an organization or leaders in the family, leaders in the community. So anybody can be a leader. But the starting point, if you want to lead when you communicate, is to think about it as a moment of leadership, to think that you're not just having a passing exchange with somebody in the hallway, but here's a potential leadership moment when you can inspire an employee or inspire your boss. I'll give you an example. Yeah. A lot of people go down the hall in, in business environments. They'll walk by somebody they know. Let's say they'll walk by one of their team members and say, how's it going? And they won't even stop to listen. They'll just go by. <laughs> That's a non-conversation, and certainly it's not an act of leadership. Take another scenario where somebody has this intention to lead in all these spontaneous situations. So let's say the boss walks down the hall, she sees one of her employees, she stops, looks at that employee, and says, I thought that was a terrific comment you made in the meeting. She pauses and she says, you know, I think it has, the idea you raised has great potential. I'd like to sit down with you and discuss it further. That's a leadership conversation. That's an act of leadership because she's inspired that staff member to believe more in himself than he ever did before he saw her at that moment. And she is inspired by that staff member's thinking. So that's the kind of thing that this book encourages people to do. Um, think of every moment you have, whether it's in the elevator, in the corridor, in a meeting, in a Q&A, you know, in an exchange with anyone or a group session. Think of all these as moments when you can express your leadership, inspire others, influence others. And you, uh, I guess, what's powerful about that? I mean, that 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 inspiration to have to be a leader. It seems like you also have to have followers. Like people have to be willing to follow you. And if you can't communicate 
uh, or, or even sometimes I've noticed sometimes you just need somebody that can be the voice for the group. Mm-hmm. And just because you have the ability to be the voice, you may also just inherently become the leader, the default leader, because you, you've you spent the time to prepare to say what needs to be said. Yes, that's it. That's what leadership is, the ability to create followership. And today's organization's title doesn't determine your leadership. But what determines your leadership, as you say, Matt, is the ability to create followership. And what that means is that people will listen to you, they'll care about your thinking, and they'll follow you. And we say that every impromptu script should end with a call to action. So you want to turn your message into some kind of action that the people you're talking to will implement. Mm, That's good. Again, we're speaking with Judith Humphrey, who is the author of many books, some of them uh, speaking as a leader, taking the stage, and her most recent book, Impromptu, Leading in the Moment. She is uh, a past communications uh, professor at York University, where she taught uh, classes there, and also is the the founder of HumphreyGroup.com, which is an organization helping uh, corporations and individuals to learn how to 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 be spontaneous in the moment. Um, Judith, also, I guess uh, there is an interesting corollary when we talk about speaking, and you brought it up earlier about. There's there almost needs to be a really healthy balance of speaking to listening, of voicing to understanding. Um, how do you strike the balance, and how do you know you're striking the balance with those that you're working with? How do you know you're striking the right balance? Mm-hmm. Well, listening is very important, and I think that you start with listening. You you know you're striking the right balance if you truly understand where your audience is coming from and let's say you're taking a one-on-one conversation you probe you actually there are three ways of listening and i recommend them all one is physically listening that is you just face the other person look the other person in the eye use body language that's directed toward the other person that's using your physical presence to listen second level is use your mind to listen so you're thinking about what the other person is saying where they're coming from, what they believe and don't believe. That's very important. And probing their minds, asking them questions. Second level listening. And third level of listening is emotional listening, where you're trying to grasp how the person feels or how the audience feels. If you do all those three things, you're bound to be ready to talk because you know exactly where the other person's coming from and what you say will be relevant and well-received. How do you, um, I, I guess, how and have you found a, a very easy way to do this? We talked about having to overcome your own emotion in a conversation, like your fear to have to say what needs to be said or to to take a position. That's that's one thing. How do I overcome the emotion that I see in the other so that I don't let that overly affect me? If somebody, I mean, I have a lot of husbands that don't like it when their wife cries um, or I have uh, people that that are dealing with somebody that's angry, and the minute they see that anger, it starts to impact their ability to be in the moment. Well, that's an absolutely important point, that you don't want to react, you want to respond. And so you need to keep your own thinking clear in your mind and not be overwhelmed by someone else's emotion. How do you do that? I think it's just a question of knowing what you want to accomplish in that conversation, what you're 
messages and staying true to your message. And, of course, acknowledging your partner's emotion, um, you know, empathizing with whatever they're feeling. So you can do that. Reach out to them and give them some comforting words if they're crying or if they're upset. Mm. But stay true to what it is you feel you need to get across in order to improve the situation. Yeah. As we wrap this up, Judith, uh, what would you say? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that that makes the biggest difference um, to for somebody to kind of stand in their moment, stand in that space, and deliver uh, the, what needs to be delivered? The biggest thing is preparation. So if you know you're going to have a meeting or an exchange of some kind, or you know that there's a possibility even of meeting somebody in the hall or in the elevator, um, collect your thoughts before that moment. Whether you're driving in or you're on the subway or you're on the train, say to yourself, if I see so-and-so, what will my message be? Or if I am in a conference today or a networking event and I see person X, what will I say to him or her? So constantly be preparing yourself mentally for all these impromptu exchanges, and you'll be so much better, and you will be successful in delivering your point. That's great stuff. Judith Humphrey, thank you so much for your great work and uh, just insights into the importance of of leading in the moment and uh, being able to, to stand uh, in that spontaneous moment and still seem spontaneous, but really help to lead people, drive people to a higher place. Great insights as we as we like to give you here on the show. Anything we can do to help you be the good in the world, that is our objective. We will continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of my um, biggest moments, I think, in life, I was was in college. I took a public speaking class and sat there with 20 really nervous college students as they were, you know, we, we knew we had 10 speeches that we had to give. Ugh, so scary. But I thought, and I did this, uh, I did this young, I think I was 18, 19 years old, and I realized at a young age that, holy cow, I can, boy, I can do this. I can give a speech that's uh, motivating and exciting, and and I'm telling you, it changed me, because now all of a sudden, I knew I could wor- I could work the words. In fact, my father-in-law always told me I had the gift of gab. And when he said it, it always sounded like offensive, like, oh, it sounds like I'm just a blabbermouth. But um, then uh, I, I learned to write. I learned to uh, do other things. I, I started learning radio even back then in the day and uh, doing broadcasting. And then I became a speaker. And notice I, my entire profession is around wordsmithing and the confidence to do that. Now I, I'm not – I usually don't get very nervous uh, speaking in front of large groups 
But all of a sudden, I realized that my confidence comes from my ability to carry myself. People might even think I'm a leader, even though I don't pay much attention to detail like that. But notice, to have a, a, to have the ability to speak is a gift. To have the ability to listen, in my belief, is even a higher gift. So if you can actually sit down and assimilate and take in what someone's saying— That's even more powerful, I think, than the ability to speak. But most people don't take a listening class. Think about it. Have you? Have you ever taken a class to learn to listen to another person? But even more importantly than listening would be the the ability to actually be impressed or moved or changed by the pain or suffering of another person and let it actually influence you. Now, nobody's taken that class. I have couples that come to learn how to listen to one another and communicate, but there's this magic moment I found in every real, I call it a real conversation, when we actually get real with each other because we're recognizing each other's emotions, we're exploring each other's story or stories, we're attending to each other's pain, and we're lifting each other. That's a real conversation, recognizing, exploring, uh, attending, and lifting the conversation. But if I can do that in this magical moment, and I was able to do it last night with some of my clients, they're hearing their partner is hurting, they're hearing that they're suffering, and then I just ask them something simple like, what does it feel like to know that your partner in life feels so unappreciated by you? And when somebody actually lets that deeper thought in, and they, they get emotional, like it feels horrible. I don't want her to feel that way. And once they have kind of the empathy about that, it starts to create a change. So tell her what you feel. And then when he starts to emote and share how he feels bad that he makes her feel that bad, it creates a very real moment. It's powerful. So make sure as you're trying to be a better communicator that you're not just doing it to manipulate everyone else in the world, but let's do it to understand everybody. And let's not just understand the words they're saying. Let's understand the emotion that they're sharing. Make sense? It's just connection, 101. It's how we connect to our fellow human beings here on this great big ball of mud. We call Earth. Anyway, a little Coach's Corner for you. Just, you know, little hope for all of us to get a little better at, uh, at the thing that really might matter most to us, connecting to one another. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. There's more. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Hey, I don't care where you work. uh, There's always a little surprise somewhere in your little work area. What are you talking about? Like some Cadbury eggs. Fish in the fridge or something? Construction workers in China were in for a pleasant surprise on Christmas Day as they reportedly discovered 30 dinosaur eggs, all impeccably preserved after about 130 million years. Hmm. So not hatchable. Well, this isn't a it Jurassic depends. Park, really. Were they made of amber? We don't know. I don't know. Uh, the construction workers found the eggs while digging at a site of a soon-to-be constructed middle school. Hmm. So you now know that middle school is going to be called like the Raptors. If they do that, there, I'm not sure what their cultural. Oh, of course, you've got to have a mascot. 
Uh, State media outlets reported that the workers found oval-shaped stones while Hmm. using explosives to break the ground and clear away rock. Hmm. So they probably, before finding those, they probably found they blew up other eggs. They blew up mom is what you're saying? They scrambled the eggs. Gotcha. Yeah. They destroyed mom, but the eggs are fine. (laughs) Suspecting that they may have found something unusual but important, the workers then notified police officials who in turn alerted museum staff about the discovery. Hmm. After analyzing the eggs, museum officials determined that they were dinosaur eggs from the Cretaceous period. Oh, wow. I think that's where the dinosaur train takes part. If you watch the show Dinosaur Train really? on PBS, yeah. Maybe, dinosaur the di- train. maybe these fell off the dinosaur train. Could have been. They always go on these field trips to different parts of, you know, yeah. the dinosaur eras. Hey, I guess. Go, go do some research. Uh-huh. See if they made their way to China. Okay. And see if they happen to drop any eggs they, off of the dinosaur They train. go under the ocean. So they really? They, yeah, it's great. Wow. Yeah. So it's really a submarine. No, it's a train. It's a pretty cool train. Oh, yeah. Highly equipped. Uh, The report from the Daily Mail noted that the black debris found in between the eggs were fossilized egg shells. Wow. So some hatched. The eggs are currently being kept at a museum where experts will look further into the discovery. I saw this in a movie. Yeah. I think. Are they keeping them warm? You got to keep them warm. Yeah. Now they got some guy sitting on them at a museum. Okay. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Hey, uh, so just just know, dig deep at your workplace. You never know what you're going to find. There's always hope, friends. We will continue the fun and the learning right here on the Matt Townsend Show straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. The good doctor, and uh, I've now healed, apparently, Jeffrey Simpson. Wrong. Nope. Jeff's still sick, but you're here. Yeah. So if you see me just like kind of blankly staring at you with my mouth hanging open that throughout would, the show. Well, that would be like normal. Well, yeah. Except this time it's just because I can't breathe. <laughs> so you had a, a head cold. I We never knew what you had, so we kept making up things. I'm... I. I'm okay with it being shrouded in mystery. Oh, really? Um, but I'm glad that I was sick and that I could listen to the show a little bit yesterday yeah. and have some time to prepare. Um, it, it made me think about your health. Why? What? Your when? your mental health. I'm healthy as can be. Well, like I, the president. Yes. Anyway, uh, later. In the program today, yes. maybe after Terry's news, I'm going to administer the MOCA test to you. The MOCA test. On the air. Yeah. And then in the next hour, I thought we could uh, administer a mental health test. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So do, just be just be getting you, ready for this. Do you think I'm the only one that should be taking it? It yeah. seems like it'd be you know really important to have everybody take it. Well, we Terry and I did it when we were hired at BYU Radio. Oh, really? Yeah. And yeah. then you don't. You're good for like another ten years. Oh, really? Is that how that? Works? But I think I think you were here before we were, and they hadn't started administering yeah. it at that point. They hadn't. By the way, I, I I don't really like mocha. Yeah, me neither. My wife likes the flavor, the flavor of mocha. I'm not no. a I'm not a mocha person. Are you, so you're married to a woman too, who secretly wishes she could drink coffee. Yes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, that are sniffing it every time they go down that aisle <laughs> yeah, at the they grocery love that, store. The coffee aisle. 
I just want a product that I can consume that has as many options. Oh, boy, yeah. There's like 5 million flavors, but there's nothing other, another yeah. product other than mm-hmm. that that has that many that and much variety. And there's lots of like Enos, like a Cappuccino, Mochaccino, Eno. Yeah. I don't know all the names. Mad Eno. Frappe, Frappe. Yeah. I have like different kinds of juices, and that's, eh. Yeah. It's not you got to really try some Diet Coca-Cola beverage. I use... Um, a version of you uh, use you use it's it's a use it's a use product but yeah. I only do it on the weekend so it's okay yeah it's also it's so all I fun. have a soda product that I consume yeah. but no mm. I know you're a weekend consumer so Jeff's feeling better I mean, well enough to to be here um, but he's now slack jawed with his mouth open because he has to breathe through his mouth now. So I, I didn't want to be here this morning. That's uh, that's I shouldn't say that. That sounds bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I wasn't going to be here, but they told me that somebody needed to administer this test, and it, it fell upon me to do that. We drew straws. Oh, really? So I pulled myself out of bed. Yeah, the short straw or the long straw? Well, it depends on how you do. Uh, so after Terry's news, we'll administer this test. Oh, and this will determine scary. how fit you are to continue working here. Okay. This is good. Uh, the mocha test. I will be taking my own version. My goal is to have 30 out of 30 like the president had. And we'll see. I mean, apparently that was the greatest score that was ever received in the history of mocha tests. Yeah, well, he apparently was the greatest mocha testing participant in the history of mocha nation. Uh, okay, then let's <laughs> let's get to the headlines because I really want to get to the test to find out how healthy I am. Uh, what's going on, Terry? What should we be paying attention to? Several notes. Uh, there was a movie. Yeah, yeah. A couple the, years the ago, Greatest Showman. No, it was a few. It was a couple years. Couple years back, called Mrs. Sloan. It had Jessica Chastain as the. Okay, uh, yeah, Mrs. She Sloan. She was a lobbyist. Yeah, and she broke some rules, and they brought her in for some federal. People do that. I mean, that happens. Committee hearings. Yeah. And she was trying to figure out if she broke some rules and laws, and in that they talk. She's basically she takes the fifth all the way through. Her lawyer tells her if she doesn't take the fifth on every single question, then they have you and they can make you talk. Oh, wow. Right? So that was kind of the premise of what was going on on the yeah. show. Steve Bannon, Uh-oh. former head of the Trump Mr. campaign Sloan. and chief strategist of the White House, yeah. goes in and talks to uh, some committees. And as he's talking, first we hear the story yesterday afternoon that apparently his lawyer was on the phone during the committee hearing talking to lawyers possibly at the White House That's to strange. see which questions they should be yeah. able to answer and yeah. shouldn't answer. He basically didn't answer anything to Congress. Okay. He's going to talk to Mueller. He's going to get all that information to Mueller. But they also said Bannon made one slip up in his closed-door hearing on Tuesday with the House oh, Intelligence boy. Committee, this out of the uh, the Axios website. Yeah. They're saying he cited four with four sources with direct knowledge of the proceedings. That Bannon admitted that he had conversations with Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, and legal spokesman Mark Carallo about Don Jr.'s infamous meeting with Russians Uh-oh. in the Trump Tower in 2016. He uh, he opened the door, apparently. He said something. So I'm not sure how all that works. Well, boy. But that's a little, you this know. could get exciting. Could get a little crazy there because that's that's a key event. Yeah. Because then it leads to, did Trump help craft the message that came out afterwards saying it was about adoptions, yeah. not about trying to get dirt on well, Hillary Clinton? I thought we already knew he crafted the letter. People are assuming. He didn't say he had anything to do with it. 
He's always denied. He goes, oh. they just... Oh, I thought, okay, I thought there were people So this, this comes into All the right, obstruction of justice and that whole line mm, of thing. But okay. Bannon, and Bannon is no loyalty to anybody. They've burned no. him from the White House. No. So they're like, oh, what's he doing? But they're st- he's still friendly with the president. Is he? Well, we'll see. I thought President Trump could hate you one minute and love you the next. Yeah, he does have mood swings in that direction. Snow, ice, and record cold temperatures across the south caused chaos Wednesday, sending cars sliding off roads and leaving at least 10 people dead. Ooh. Uh, one of those killed an eight-month-old baby that slid off an uh, overpass in Louisiana. It's at least seven other deaths reported in Louisiana, Georgia, and West Virginia due to cars spinning out of control in icy conditions. Texas also has reported deaths caused by low temperatures. Uh, the brutal weather also caused government offices and schools to shut down in various cities, while icy runways prompted delays and cancellations in New Orleans, Memphis, and North Carolina. Okay, man. If you, if you watch the news, it's just this conga line of cars crashing into each other. It's just <laughs> that, that's not the that's not the dance you want to be doing. In no, the morning. but I mean there there was a freeway. I believe it was in Houston. People were turning off going down an on ramp just to get off the freeway. Just to get off. Wow, out of it was the just line. an ice skating rink. Oh, we can't man. do this. Dangerous. While meeting with Democrats on Wednesday, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly called some of the President Trump's campaign stances on the border wall quote uninformed. Several Ooh. people tell CNN. John Kelly. Chief of staff. Chief of staff, John Kelly. Saying that eh, the previous uh, yeah. ideas were uninformed. My man's not fully informed. Representative Ruben Gallego from Arizona confirmed the comment during an interview with Wolf Blitzer and a person familiar with Kelly's meeting in the Congressional Hispanic Caucus said Ooh. Kelly told them he was working on educating Trump on campaign vows and policy. Good luck. He goes, you make campaign promises, but then you learn the reality of governing, which is difficult, Kelly said per a lawmaker at the meeting. The hour-long meeting ended without any sort of deal regarding uh, the DACA immigrants, which is the big hang-up. Yeah. We may be defunding the government on Friday if we don't get some sort of deal on DACA, and it seems like everyone's locked in, digging in and not having any sort of talking, even talking about it. So Kelly indicated the president is motivated to have a fix for DACA, right? Uh, he, he, he's motivated... To have a fix, but he does he have one? No. Okay, just motivated. He's just saying no to everyone. I and mean, I'm motivated to be a billionaire. Mitch McConnell was on <laughs> TV yesterday saying, he goes, well, once we figure out what the president wants, then we can move forward on having some sort of agreement yeah, negotiation. Right. Right? I was right. like, I don't even know what he wants. Yeah, he doesn't even know what he wants. And then the guy heading up Trump's immigration push from the White House was confused as to why Mitch McConnell doesn't know what the president wants. After seeing the clip of Mitch McConnell saying, we don't know what the president wants. Was was Mitch in that meeting that got crazy the other day? I don't know. I'm not sure what his uh, location was during that time. Um, (laughs) After Kelly's words were published, we believe the New York Times put it out, Trump tweeted, the wall is the wall. It has never changed or evolved from the first day I conceived it. So he conceived of a wall that would completely... Uh, run a, along the entire border of Mexico. Now, he qualified that there's some areas where oh, we don't okay. need that, and maybe we'll need to be able to see through it, and, you know, because they're talking about yeah. massive amounts of drugs being thrown over and people getting crushed on the other side, which I'm not sure if ever happened, but he Whoa. mentioned it. And, yeah, he tossed that one out there. Wow. It'll have a big door in it. It's a big, beautiful wall. They're talking about solar panels. Yeah, a beautiful solar paneled wall. <laughs> With a Trump sign on it. <laughs> I love the whole story of the wall. It just keeps evolving. But it doesn't evolve. No, it's the same. The it's wall the same. is the wall. Yeah, that's how he conceived it. So we'll see what Kelly and Trump do to 
kind of reconcile that today when they show up to the office. Didn't I wonder, Pink Floyd look, that'll be make 11. a song about that? Yeah, yeah. That'll be at 11 Eastern when Trump's done with his executive time. No, I've read all about what he's doing in his executive time. He's he's he's. I always just imagined he was sitting around in a robe, right? But he's not. He's up dressed mm. in the yellow room, Ooh. the yellow oval room, yeah, which is uh, where it's kind of like it's his it's his office, okay, up in the quarters, right? And he sits in there and works. It's yellow. It's apparently a yellow oval room. There has to be a reason behind the yellow. Where like, is FDR, it a power, is no, it a power you color know or something? The, you know, the White House has colored rooms, different colors. There's a blue room. The r- red room, the green room. I think that's the yellow oval room. Red room. Red room. And he, he sits there, by the way, and um, that's the same room FDR found out about the Pearl Harbor attack. Because oh. FDR Ooh. used it as an office as well. Oh, wow. So he's just following yeah. those at, before him. The FBI is probing whether a prominent Russian banker with close ties to Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin may have illegally funded money to the National Rifle Association in a bid to help elect Donald Trump, according to a new report from McClatchy. The report, which is based on two anonymous sources, claims that special counsel Robert Mueller is now focusing on the deputy governor of Russia's central bank. Uh, who was involved in all this. According to the report, the NRA spent $30 million supporting Trump during the 2016 election. In March of last year, the Daily Beast first reported the NRA had met with a Kremlin hardliner in 2015 who was sanctioned 18 months earlier for the uh, dealing with the invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Ah, oh, Crimea. So now there's, like, money and NRA. Crimea and River. Are we funneling money through Russia? So are you telling me that um, Vlad... Vlad? Or is, someone adjacent to Vlad. He's a member He's a member of the NRA. Well, maybe. He is pro-gun. I mean, he probably has he's more NRA pro- stickers that he puts on his bumper. I think he's more pro-tank, but... Yeah. <laughs> so he's shirtless. Where is he holding these guns? Uh, he, he has, has people. people. How do you conceal them? He has he gun has holders, people. people that just carry his gun. It's a very... Jeeves, I believe. Yeah. And finally, Apple is planning to build another corporate campus and hire 20,000 workers during the next five years as part of a $350 billion commitment to the U.S. that will partially be financed by upcoming windfall from the country's new tax law. Yeah, they're bringing money back. According to the AP, the pledge announced Wednesday comes less than a month after Congress approved the sweeping overhaul of the tax code. The reforms after uh, they offer a one-time break in, in a cash being held overseas. Apple plans to take advantage of that provision and bring back $252 billion in offshore cash, wow. generating a tax bill of roughly $38 billion. It's something that Apple CEO Tim Cook promised uh, the company would do if it could avoid being taxed at the 35% rate yeah. that had been effect, in effect under previous tax law. About $75 billion of the $350 billion in U.S. investment will be paid from money that had been overseas. Um, while Apple is likely to return some of its overseas money to its shareholders, Wednesday announced it's designed to be a show of faith in the USA. Wow. So this, they want to build a new campus, that, so we're going to get another Amazon sort of competition across yeah, the country. Is, but this Trump, this Trump tax thing, it's working. It's working. And the first, it, not even really into effect yet, but yeah. We're sure. finally getting Apple to come home. <laughs> well, I, I, di- I did hear that um, most of that money's probably been here the whole time. No. They just have, uh, they have other companies... That are incorporated you overseas. Want, you don't but want that this money's tax actually thing to here. work. You're saying 
No, they're bringing it over. Well, no, it's like that's, they just, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars they're going to repatriate. They said about $75 billion of the $350 billion in U.S. investment will be paid from money that has been overseas. $75 billion of the $350 right. billion. Well, yeah, but that's, that's about the tax burden, right? Well, no, but they're saying that the investment will be paid from money that had been overseas. Wrong. Right? right? So they're bringing all this money back in, but it's only $75 billion of the total $350 billion they're talking about. Yeah, You're wrong. Right. But the three fifty is what th- is the money that we, they, they've earned and stashed away. But the taxes on that money is probably $75 billion. Okay. Isn't that what they're saying? <laughs> no. No, it's not. Go on. It's fine. Well, because the tax- We could continue this, but we're never going to get to the test to see if you're mentally fit to be on the air. By the way- and That's well, what's important. Right? I don't know why we're questioning that now. It's a good time to do it. Uh, well, we, we have a test. That's one, the problem. One other thing, just really fast, because our guest today is talking about the fact that this uh, whole tax plan may actually make, make it so our teenagers can start working again. Hmm. Apparently, they haven't been working. Is that their problem? Yeah, that's one of them. I thought they had phones. That's paid another for problem. by mom and dad. That's another problem. But a lot of kids don't. And, no, they don't. And they're not even able to go work. They're not working because they don't have the money and the companies aren't hiring them. So they're hoping that when companies have to pay less taxes, they can hire more hmm. kids. Hmm. Which might be good for Jeff, depending on how this test goes. So let's do the mental health mocha test. <laughs> Unemployment. <laughs> All right. So really quickly, yeah. I want you to give me the date, the month, the year, the day, the place, and the city. Now, the date, the numbers, is what I'm looking for here. Okay. Today's date. Numbers. Today's date, ja- uh, 1-19-2018. Uh, it's not the 19th? No. Okay. Oh, one eighteen. How, how about the month? What do you mean the month? What month are we in? We would be in January. That would be one. The year? 2018. The day? Thursday. The place? Uh, the place location? BYU Broadcasting? Okay, good enough. What Provo, city? Utah. All right. So you didn't do too bad on that, that first one. That wasn't bad, yeah. Okay. So I need you to uh, read these words twice. We'll just read them across once and then read them across again. Okay. Jeff... And Terry deserve raises. Okay, one more time, please. Jeff and Terry deserve raises. Okay, we'll come back to that here in a few minutes here. Uh, This is something you can do throughout the show, but it's something that most people are able to do. Yeah. And uh, we'll need you to draw a picture of Don Shaline. That's easy. Okay. So Don Shaline, you'll draw a picture of him. Do you want him in a sweater or not in a sweater? Uh, preferably with one that's tied around his neck. Okay. With a boa or without a boa? We can leave that out. Okay. You don't have a lot of time, so right. you know, just it can be crude, but uh, yeah. you know, yeah. I've got some pictures here, just some uh, ordinary, everyday pictures that a typical human. Would oh. be able Is this to... like a Rorschach test that I have to tell you what I think it looks like? No, 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 no. Okay. These aren't objective. These are very subjective. Okay, that's okay. a Rorschach. Rorschach. So what is this first one? Uh, that is obviously Describe a what bulldog. You're seeing. It's a bulldog with uh, headphones on, listening to the Matt Townsend show in boots. Okay. I like how you gave a little plug for your show within that, too. Yeah. Okay, here is the next one. Okay, that is an upside-down picture of you. Uh, with your head cold in full fluidity uh, thinking about the Matt Townsend show. 
Interesting. Okay. And then here is the uh, the next one. That is a picture of my gallbladder. Uh, post-surgical removal. While the doctor was listening to the Matt Townsend show. Okay. Uh, and this this is just another very simple test. It's you know we're on the a, radio, right? Kind of a vision test. But you just describe what you're seeing in in this picture here. Uh, I'm seeing the same picture of my uh, gallbladder. Ignore that. With just the word will do. Uh, the word would be f- Frigiher. Frigiher. Is Frigiher. that your final answer? That's my final answer. Okay. Uh, just a couple more things. You, One, you understand this is radio. Yes, yes, yes. This yes. is a lot of visual this, stuff for radio. This is not visual. Okay, this is, uh, again, something that yeah. a typical human, somebody fit for the radio should be able to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two trains leave different cities heading toward each other at different speeds. When and where do they meet? Train A, traveling 70 miles per hour, leaves Westford, heading toward Eastford, 260 miles away. At the same time, train B, traveling 60 miles per hour. Northford. That's pretty good. Thank you. Wow. Okay. And then if you can please recall the five words that, uh, that we had you recite earlier on, that will wrap up the test and I can get going on the score here. Uh, those words were very simple. Jeff and Terry need help. Ooh, not close. Well, let me. I'll uh, during the break. I'll tabulate the score and and keep in mind there I, is a mental assessment, uh, a mental health assessment uh, that we'll do next hour. Oh, brother! To see before we can get a clear idea of whether or not you should be on the radio. This is. It's a lot of. It's intense. <sighs> Anyway, folks, straight ahead, uh, we'll get the results of my mental health evaluation uh, on air, by the way, and uh, why the Republican tax plan may be putting American uh, youth back to work. What's up next? Well, we heard today that uh, Apple is going to now be bringing back uh, 200 and something billion dollars into the economy, money that they had apparently uh, had overseas, and uh, they now will build a new campus. They say employ 20,000 people here in the United States. But with this new Republican tax plan, many want to know whether the bill is only going to help the rich companies, the rich people, or is it actually going to improve labor market opportunities for workers, especially the nation's youth, whose uh, careers and jobs have suffered since the turn of the century. Here to explain why he believes that uh, this new tax plan actually will help the youth is Randall Olson. Uh, Randall is a professor and the director of the Center for Human Resource Research and has been heavily involved in the National Longitudinal Surveys of Labor Market Experience for over 20 years. And we're honored to have you here. Uh, Randy, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. This is this is interesting, uh, interesting insight I think you're bringing to us. I didn't realize that um, the youth were having such a hard time um, with employment. It's something that has kind of it seems to have eluded me, but also a lot of major press. We don't we don't talk much about how hard it is for some of the youth to actually find jobs today. It it is most 
peculiar that, especially during the Great Recession, that this was something that you just didn't talk about in, in polite company. But when you look at the data, it's, it's really uh, startling just how, how badly the fortunes of, of, uh, of younger workers have reversed in over the past uh, decade or, or 20, even 20 years. Talk talk about why that matters, Randall. I mean, I could hear people saying, come on, we, we got to worry about jobs for their parents, not for the youth. But it, some of the data you were uh, you were talking about in your article, it's it's incredible about if you have a bad start in, as a youth, how much that will impact you going up through your ages. Well, no, that's 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 exactly right. Uh, it's it's a little known fact that the, the having one more year of, of education increases your your wage rate on average something on the order of you know four to six percent but you get a similar effect for each a year of uh, of work experience that you've had hmm. so work experience is just as important as education and so when uh, when young people can't find work they miss out on on the opportunity to gain work experience and that and that's a loss that they're going to feel for their for their entire lives. I think everybody recognizes well. It's really important that the the young people get an education, and it has an undeniably positive effect on on earnings prospects over over the life course. But it's it's just as important that they have that they have jobs, and in, by by working. They they learn the everyday skills of well you have to get along with your supervisor you have to work cooperatively with your coworkers you you have to be polite you have to show up on time you know, skills like that that yeah. are that are really very basic and you know for a lot a lot of people they only learn them in in the in the workplace sometimes it's kind of ugly the first couple of jobs you have yeah. but 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 most of us learn those those skills and when young people can't find find jobs, uh, it, it has an impact. In yeah. addition, the, I, 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 you know, I don't know for sure, but I have a strong suspicion that a lot of the problems we see with, with, with drug abuse among uh, not only young workers, but even uh, uh, older workers who've lost their jobs, it's a case of people who you know, don't have direction to their lives. They don't, they don't have gainful in employment, what are they going to do with their time? And they turn to these 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 other behaviors that are that are completely self destructive. Mm. So I, I I think that there there are reasons not only on the positive side why we want to see people working and employed and and, and earning money, but also on the avoidance of the, the the negative side that that being out of work is is not good for 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 the spirit of the of of the worker and if and if they if they despair of finding employment and turn to drugs you know it destroys families it mm. destroys relationships yeah i think there's a lot to be said absolutely and 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 by the way, you also even mentioned just the delaying of families. So it 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 tends to delay uh, the ability to have families, to want to marry. So maybe this is some of the reason why we see people marrying at later ages and and not I, having I, families. I I think that's uh, that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, uh, in, in in the marriage market, you you have to 
have typically a, a, a young man and a, and a young woman who see each other as desirable partners. And, uh, you know, especially for, for men, if, if they don't have a job, you know, they, they get marked down on, on, on the, on the shelf of <laughs> yeah, right. spouses. And, you know, and is, a, is a woman going to marry a man with, without, you know, prospects, especially if she's looking to start a, a family, you know, probably not, not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I think you're, you're, you're exactly right. And we see it in declining homeownership, family formation, yeah, the failure to launch living in the basement it's uh, it's all of one cloth what 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 do the numbers look like for teenagers what percentage of them are actually working and um and i guess too what do you what do you think this new tax plan the republican tax plan is going to do to to bring that back to lift that up well it's you know historically what you know for 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 young people 16 to 24, which is the, uh, the, uh, a group that I think is, is quite imp- uh, important, uh, uh, historically their employment rate has been in the in the high 50s. Uh, at times, it's approached 60 percent. Uh, in the Great Recession, that fell down to 42, 43 percent, which is a very, very steep, yeah. steep decline. So you go from about 60% in, in 2003 or so, and you go down to, you know, 43, 44% in, in 2008, 2009, that's really, that's really quite a shock. And, and, and this, this is very, very unusual. We've, you know, we, we've never seen in, in the, in all the years that the government has been collecting employment rate data in the United States, We've never seen uh, the employment rate for 16 to 24 year olds fall down as far as it did during the during the Great Great Recession. Mm. So, what is what does the tax bill you know, mean? I, I think I think the, I think the tax bill is important, but I, I think it's also uh, uh, reasonable to say that while the tax bill is important, the regulatory environment is also important. Important, so the the tax bill is going to uh, reduce the cost of capital for for companies. They're going to be more willing to invest. Uh, they're they're going to we would hope invest their money here in in the United States. And as you noted in the, in the lead in, uh, we we see some signs that that's 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 already starting to happen. Uh, so that's that's the that's the 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 first. The first step in, in in getting these things to to recover a, a little bit more, but I think the regulatory environment is is also uh, really important. Uh, we we spent uh, you know the better part of a, a decade with a regulatory environment that was that was clearly anti-business, uh, and the, a lot of the banks sat on their money because they were frankly afraid that the government would come after them again with balance sheet requirements and that would you know and if, if they failed those tests for a while they you know they, they couldn't pay bonuses and things of that sort. Right. And, and, and they, they they worried about if what what happens if we if we make a loan and the government really cracks down on on uh, on our reserve requirements what are what are we going to do so the safest thing for them to do was just put their money in short-term government money and, and the the government was actually paying paying interest on reserves. So, 
for a lot of banks, this this was this is pretty much the easy easy way out, and if, if they and they you know a lot of companies didn't know who was next on on the target list, you know, yeah. who was going to be the next company singled out for special treatment in in Washington. So the easiest thing to do is to to do nothing. So with a better regulatory environment, you know, we already see you know, a lot of a lot more interest in in, in drilling for 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 oil, uh, things of that sort that were heretofore, you know, off the table that, you know, were not going to be uh, allowed the building of pipelines. And, and notice, you know, a really notable example of, of something that was really needed. You, you needed to move the, the, the petroleum from, from North Dakota south toward the refineries and moving it in, in, in trains was horribly dangerous and environmentally threatening. But, mm. But yet the, the administration, who stressed safety in the environment, uh, made it impossible to build the pipelines to, uh, to avoid carrying the petroleum in, 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 in trains. It was just uh, it was a it was a are you kidding me moment, you know, for for a lot of people that the rhetoric just didn't match the actions. But, but hey, with, Randy, with that, let me let me ask you. Side. Oh, go let me ask you this, Randy, because I could hear um, there, there's this there's always this battle, right, about. Um, regulatory controls and taxation of businesses and the impact that has and, you know, trickle-down economics, Reaganomics, all these different um, things that get, you know, bandied about. But but one of the things that that really surprised me um, in in your article that you wrote uh, is is the fact uh, – is some of the data coming from company or countries that tax at lower rates – tax their businesses at lower rates and the impact that has um, on on business and and I guess the the thriving of business talk about Ireland for example what's their tax rate on businesses as opposed to the United States and what impact does that have well I, I think you know Ireland is you know an interesting example their uh, their tax rate was as I recall I don't know, 12-ish percent something yeah, of that yeah. sort uh, where, whereas ours was what around, right around thirty five percent, and they, you know, Ireland kind of made a living from from their, their low tax rates and, and luring luring companies to, to Ireland. Uh, you know, a lot of companies would would uh, would re- essentially reincorporate in in low tax countries to to avoid paying uh, taxes. Uh, in in the United States, and if you move those headquarters, well, you know you're moving some really good paying jobs out of the U.S. to Ireland or to to England or to wherever, just to avoid the the uh, the, the very high rate of taxation in the United States. So there's there, there's good reason to believe that that uh, lowering the tax rate will will stop that. That that sort of thing. In fact, and now now they're even Ireland's worried now, right? Because if the United States is lowering their tax rates, uh, it's going to change a lot of economies around the around the world as well. China also uh, is starting to perk up about what we're doing here locally. It, it, exactly in Germany, so uh, it, it's it's really it's really changing the the, the terms of of discussion uh, around the world and. Uh, and that's that that's that's probably to the good. We're actually we're actually seeing a recovery in the worldwide economy, uh, you know, long long overdue. And I think you know part of it is the the climate has just 
has just improved, mm. and that that gives people confidence. And the other part you point out is, and there's also there are lessons from history that when we look back to the to the Great Recession, uh, the uh, during the Roosevelt administration in, uh, in 1935-37 was a very anti-business uh, climate. Uh, the the ca- Roosevelt's cabinet was openly hostile toward 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 business. They were, you know, they were essentially they were, well, they were Marxists, uh, and um, today I guess you'd call them progressives. But they, you know, they were very anti-business. They raised the the corporate income tax rate, uh, and uh, the the phrase there was, uh, you know, the capital went on strike essentially. The business community was so fearful of what the government would do to them that they they, they didn't invest, and the United States fell back into into depression. All the rest of the world was mm. was coming out, and the United States only came out of the depression, uh, you know, with with the advent of World War II, which is just about the worst way you can imagine. To, yeah, to, to yeah. You gotta, to you gotta go to war to get out of it. Uh, again, we're speaking with uh, Professor Randall Olson, who's the director of the Center for Human Resource Research, and has been heavily involved in the National Longitudinal Survey of the Labor Market Experience, which is the called the NLS over, for over the last twenty years. And um, one of the things, Randall, I'd love you to help us with just for the few minutes we have here, um, if. If this, if the tax, new tax laws are going to ch- change some of the dynamics and and make it so companies can, or if they're willing to, you know, reinvest more in employees and workers, what can we do with our youth to make sure that they're ready to take advantage of these opportunities and and even to take advantage of of getting, you know, g- getting to work as young as they, you know, in, at a at a good age, a young age. Well, uh, you know, one, of, one of the things that's, that I think we don't pay enough attention to, but it's getting more attention, is uh, the, the what are sometimes called the non-cognitive skills of, of workers. I, I, I came across a really interesting quotation from a, from, a, from, a, from a corporate head who said, we hire people for their cognitive skills and we fire them for their non-cognitive mm. deficits. So it, it's the the ability to get along with with others, to be cooperative, to be to be open with others, to to be emotionally stable. These are really important skills in making a young worker uh, work effectively in in the work workplace. And anything that 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 schools and parents uh, and religious leaders can do to encourage uh, young people to acquire those skills to to, to essentially clean up their acts and so that they can behave in 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 a, in a normal and functional way is really going to to help a lot because you know children who are or young people who are emotional train wrecks don't make good workers. Yeah, that's so so true, Randall. Thank you. I think uh, that's a great that's a great uh, place to leave it. Uh, we we've got to train up our kids to have kind of that emotional intelligence that social intelligence to know how to keep a job. And by the way, one of the best ways to do that is to get them working. And as parents, a lot of times we just don't want to go there. We don't want to, we don't want to make our kids work because grades are so important. 
Yeah, they are, along with some of the uh, non-cognitive skills that uh, might get you fired as well. Uh, we will continue this discussion straight ahead and continue uh, doing what we can to help be the good in the world. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeff is here. Um, based on our earlier interactions, I'm not quite sure he's all here yet. Yep. He's still slack-jawed and cross-eyed. What Did he tell you what meds he's on? He's I, not, he's I, not haven't, even, I haven't forgotten about your test, though. We need to do the second half of your test next hour. Is it the same kind of Sudafed type it's of a, medicine yeah. the president was yeah. on that let him to slur apparently. his speech? Yeah, apparently. That was revealing. Do you think that's a real thing? That he dehydrated the president, the doctor, yes. over maybe too much, dehydrated. We got this United... United States. That thing. Yeah. No, I think... Because imagine you're on Sudafed. Imagine you're on other drugs or whatever. And then... You drink 12 the, Diet Cokes a day, which are diuretics. Right, the Propecia, the rosacea creams he's taking. Yeah. It all combines into this mix that dehydrated the president that led us to the yeah. wonderful soundbite of who? The United States. See? Who hasn't felt like that sounded? I usually just get a drink of water. Yeah. He well, doesn't want to do it, though, because it's always this whole Marco Rubio thing he did, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand. Thirsty Marco. <laughs> hey, did Mitt Romney ever make that special announcement, by the way? No. no. Why? He speaks, but he doesn't announce anything. He, he's doing campaign-style speeches, though. Like, he did a, a pro-business one on, what was it, Tuesday? Yeah. And then Friday, he's going to talk at a tech summit, so lots of technology-type well, uh, stuff. And his, apparently, his really good friend, Kem Gardner, who's kind of a real estate developer here in Utah, he's... He's looking for some property, some real estate where a campaign office might be able to be situated. Well, they're knocking down that prison. Do you think that would yeah, no, be no. a— No, no. I think they actually want like a oh. like a real established See, office. And the government thinks – the local government thinks that Amazon's building their headquarters there. So. That's where Amazon's Ooh, bringing that's the headquarters. Little, that's a total pipe dream. They're not going to build their headquarters in Utah. They're going to build it in like Boston or Pittsburgh. No, is he hoping, you never know. Is he hoping to catch us off guard – is he hoping no. to surprise us? No. He has to declare sometime in March. That's the deadline. So yeah. everyone's just like, give him time. He's just he's he's just trying to line everything up. What do you think he's doing? He's Mitt Romney's the epitome of measuring five times, cutting once. So he's now measuring. But hasn't he only successfully Measure, 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 measure. <laughs> cut once. Hasn't he only successfully won? One term as a governor, and that that's the extent of his political career? Yeah, well, yeah. and But he, he won as a Republican in, like, one of the most Democratic states in the country, which was – that says a lot. But and one now term, he's in right? one of the most one Republican. Term? Yeah. Yeah. And ran for president twice and ran the Olympics and made a lot of money uh, running companies. So, so, like Batman, his secret superpower is he's rich. Okay. Well, and he's intelligent. Well, so was smart. Batman. So he's hardworking. So was Batman. Eh. Did he go to the Himalayas to learn how to become a ninja? No, Batman did. 
And have you seen Batman. Batman's <laughs> abs? Yeah, Batman's got some abs. You guys have never seen Mitt's abs. Mm-hmm. Okay, how did we get there? Hey, um, <laughs> a lot of people are lonely, lonely. out there. I'm so lonely. Yeah. So on Wednesday, Prime Minister Wait, Teresa. Did, oh, did yeah. you just? Did. He just did broke just into sing? song. Yeah, it was a little bit. Gave me on, the chills. On Wednesday, Prime. It's the cough medicine. I'm okay. Prime, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May announced that Tracy Couch is the new Minister for Loneliness in Great Britain. She's she's the 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 Minister of Loneliness. There's an estimated nine million Britons, from the very young to the very elderly, who are tackling the problem of loneliness. Yeah. Serving as an advocate for those who have no one to talk to or share their thoughts and experiences with. Many people in the UK are distressed by the sad reality of modern life, May said. And the government research has shown that about 200,000 elderly people haven't spoken with a friend or relative in more than a month. Man. So apparently she's, she's what, going to be calling all of these people? I don't know. Like personal notes. I'm not sure. Researchers uh, say isolation can lead to higher risk of cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, as well as mental and emotional issues. You don't have to be a minister of loneliness to do your part. Pick up no. the phone, offer a drive to an elderly relative or, yeah. or a friend to an appointment or lunch. Drop by with a hot meal. Ask if they'd like to join you in a group activity. Just It's an effort to help you think of that person that might be forgotten. Yeah. No, I think that's a great idea. So they've given a government office to tackle this problem because it seems to be a big issue in Great Britain. Maybe we need a secretary of loneliness. Mm -hmm. That'd be the equivalent. Yeah. Except we're trying to cut down on governments. We're just firing people left and right. Many say that is like, that's Kellyanne Conway. (laughs) She's already, you know, kind of been banished. Bananished. Occasionally she'll pop up cause some problems and run away. <laughs> I, I think it's a really neat idea because there really there is an epidemic of loneliness. People are more and more lonely as we it's amazing as we have more connectivity, mm-hmm. we We're are more becoming isolated. more isolated and lonely. Right. And I really like that Jeff was able to record you singing that song and then yeah. play it back. And then you like auto-tuned it, yeah. remixed it, put a beat under it and put it back out. Yeah. That's fast And work. I put the chipmunk filter on it too. There you go. Right. Oh, you didn't have to say that. You could, everyone could have just assumed it was that was just Terry's voice auto tuned. Right. Yeah. You blew the secret. Eh. So you have a cold too? No. But he does. Yeah, I was just was trying to make a reference that everyone could laugh at. Yeah. Well, almost worked. <laughs> Anywho, uh, okay, we will continue the fun straight ahead. More trivia, more uh, crazy news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, as uh, life might be lonely for some, there there might be a little pick-me-up. Uh, President Trump has decided to put out his... 2017 Fake News Awards. He, he's, he's got his own awards for the media. Now, he played it up like it was going to be really big production values, all this stuff, and then it turned out to be something they posted on the GOP website, and it turned into try to be some sort of fundraiser for the GOP, and then it crashed their website as everyone tried to go see what these were going to be. But what? then it blew up on Twitter sphere, right? And a, a bunch bit. of a bunch of 
uh, tweeters. Is that, that sounds so weird. Yeah. A bunch of tweeters like were, were making fun of him, and so it kind of backfired. Well, what what it is, the majority of the stories they listed were stories that media companies put out and then went, that's a mistake, put out and a corrected retraction, it. corrected yeah. it, and moved on. Yeah. Right? And so he's just airing grievances here. There's no actual fake news. Fake news is the Pope endorsed Trump. That was the most... Yeah most shared, widely shared of these fake news that are being investigated type stories or Hillary Clinton's a lizard. That was another story Hold that on. trended. She is? Not. Okay. So fake news. these are fake news stories put out intentionally to deceive, right? Yeah. The news media put out, made a mistake, retracted it, and fixed it publicly. So yeah. who won? Well, I, don't, I don't know if well, they're, they're not real awards. They just listed like ten. There's not like you know. It's not like in the a winner would be order. CNN. I'm sure because CNN is his main target. New York Times, ABC, yeah, New York Times. CNN, Washington Post. By the way, th- and it just sort of rotates through those guys. So let me make this. Let me make sure I'm getting this. These all these institutions they they use the term fake news more than anybody on earth, right? Yes. More than the president, right? The president used it 400 times last year? He used the term, uh, a guy on CNN went back and looked through some data and counted it up. 400 times he's used the word since the beginning of his presidency, which is one time a day. And now we have, you know, dictators around the world that are using that to justify their actions as they're locking up journalists who are writing truth about what they're doing. And there's, oh, it's fake news. They're going to jail. And now... uh, and Jeff, Flake Jeff Flake is on it, and he's so now we have Flake news. Flake spoke about it on the floor of the Senate yesterday. There was a John McCain op-ed yeah. talking about how this is harming journalism around the world, making it dangerous for people to cover That's the news crazy. around the globe. So yeah, I just want to know if when these news organizations won these awards, did they thank President Trump in yeah. their acceptance yeah, speech? Yeah, I'd like to thank the little people, the people that got me where I am today. Fun stuff. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.